Welcome to Destination Linux, episode 123. This is a podcast of opinions made up of four of the greatest minds ever to discuss Linux on the history of the planet. My name is Noah, and with me today are my Apex Predators, podcasting Zeb, Ryan, and Michael. Michael, how have you been this week? I've been doing great, and I actually have good news about the latest episode of This Week in Linux. I was on time. It was amazing. And I also released it on time before we even recorded this episode, which is unheard of. Hey, Zeb, can you check if pigs fly again today? Because things are are just not uh, what they used to be. You were early in getting documents. You were early in your shows. You were basically almost on time for this episode. It's kind of like I'm an adult now. Did you finally buy a (laughs) clock? No, I don't have a clock, no. Okay. I, don't, I have I have no actual reason for how it worked. I think it's just a fluke in, in the in the matrix. Yeah. Well, Michael, I'm glad to see you're making progress in adulting. Ryan, how is your week going? Well, as an already adult, you know, for the last 20 <laughs> years, uh, I didn't have to worry about being on time for stuff because that's just normal. <laughs> uh, but what I, I pretty much I've been messing with OpenSUSE a lot this week and um, trying out, you know. The OpenSUSE platform on on various different machines and doing some videos on it. I think one of the cool videos is actually was because of mistake. Every time I do a distro review on my channel, I usually end with gaming, do a couple games, show some benchmarks, that type of stuff. And sure. this one I forgot, and so somebody mentioned it in the comments. So OpenSUSE got its own whole video on benchmarks and gaming and all of that. And actually, I was surprised by the results. First of all, the Tomb Raider benchmarks some of the highest scores I've received in any distro ever, which I was pretty surprised about. Also wow. within Arch, which is, you know, you know how much I love Arch. Um, and because of its speed and being current and on a rolling release, it was very, very competitive to Arch's benchmark scores within 100 points, which is within the realm of really error there. That Because uh, if you keep running the benchmark, sometimes you'll get scores, you know, that range between 50 and 100 difference out of thousands. But um, yeah, it, it was pretty impressive to see how well it really held up. Another thing that I benchmarked it against was Fedora 30 in this video. So because Fedora has a new release, they're obviously already on a newer kernel as well. And it fared very well, much better than you would expect against rolling releases. It did fantastic. So all in all, it really goes to show how much work has gone into all of these different distros um, as far as you know the, the work in the kernel and the hardware compatibility and really getting the acceleration out of your GPU uh, for the various elements. And um, so a lot of people seem to enjoy the videos and you can go check them out out there and see how OpenSUSE affairs in the Fedora versus um, Arch benchmarks. That's awesome. So what I got out of that was some OpenSUSE stuff and some gaming gobbledygook. Yes, gaming gobbledygook, but yeah. we know we're going to make you a gamer soon. So, you know, you might as well just accept it. I, I'm working. You know, I'm all open to it. Zeb, uh, what's new with you? Uh, well, I've had a pretty good week helping the people on the Peppermint Forum as we've uh, been coping with the deluge of requests about Peppermint 10 and can you do this and can you change that and all the rest of it. So it was going really well until about 6 o'clock last night when I got a little notification that This Week in Linux was going live. It went live at six o'clock. I was so shocked. I fell off my chair, banged my head and missed the show. It was just shocking. <laughs> you were injured. You were injured by Ma- Michael's punctuation. Is that, uh, punctuation. Yeah. Is that an accurate summation of what you've told me? Mm-hmm. That, seems, that seems right. I wonder how many people hurt themselves because you were on time, Michael. 
I, I think there was a, think a, a significant amount because there was. A, it was actually it. It surprisingly took a while for pe- for the people to show up to it because of the fact that I was on time. It's <laughs> never happened before. <laughs> now, did you were you confused by it at all? At any point? Were no. You when like, I looked at it, I was like, "Hey, the numbers are much lower than normal." That's because I'm on time. I get it. But the funniest <laughs> oh, thing, yeah. Noah, is somebody said in the chat, "I'll show up 90 minutes late because I don't think I'll miss much" or something like that. They show up 90 minutes late, and he'd only gotten to two topics. Yeah. At that point, I already, I already had only had two done. So they were right. So you, so how does that happen? Did you just did you run into problems after you started? Uh, there was there was about forty five minutes of trying to get YouTube to work properly and to send notifications <laughs> and stuff. Yeah, but then there was also some some time for um, talking to the chat and stuff. So yeah, you're I'm telling me you're hold on hold on. You're telling me your show was late because you couldn't get YouTube to send notifications out. Yeah, that was the problem. Well, also last week it, the YouTube stream didn't even work it to anyone. No one could watch it. So oh I God. did. I did only Twitch at all. Like the only thing thing I did was Twitch last week. So this week I spent a little bit more time trying to get YouTube not to be terrible. And then it was. Uh, it took forty five minutes, but I figured it out and fixed it. So how long was the full episode? How long were you live yesterday? Uh, total of about four and a half hours. See, Noah, I always tell, tell you at the end of your shows that they need to be longer, right? That's my yes. perpetual feedback. Yeah, so, you've mentioned that a couple of times. Yeah, um, you really should consider doing a four and a half, six and a half hour show like Michael. The show itself, when it's edited, is no, nowhere near that. But <laughs> the stream, yes, is about four hours or on average about three hours. So, Ryan, I, I, I've taken your suggestion under advisement. After careful consideration, I've decided I rather enjoy just being a broadcasting professional and sitting down for the amount of time that it takes me to actually do the show <laughs> rather than uh, four to five times. Oh, sorry. Was that uh, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> I know it's a foreign I'm, language. I'm, provi- I'm providing an extra bonus. That's what it is. <laughs> you get so it's, much material. It's, it's bonus content. Yeah. yeah. And then I edit it and come, make a, not a nice montage of the stream that I've never done that before, but I've got a, here's what you should do. Here's a branding thing. I'll give it to you for free. Okay. You ready? Okay, cool. Come for the show. Stay for the disaster. <laughs> I thought that was a destination Linux tag. I think that applies to both, really. Yeah. That's I'm fine with that. We can embrace it. Okay. All right, Michael, tell me uh, what we have coming in for email this week. Well, email this week was from from John, and he says, uh, "Hello to the four of the greatest minds ever to discuss Linux." Well, That's hi, awesome. hi, how you doing? Uh, I'm a lifelong tech nerd. Began with the Commodore 64 and the Apple II, and then moved all the way from uh, Windows 3.1 to Windows 10 while dabbling with Linux here and there along the way. Uh, finally, the last last May, because of the, the consistent Windows 10 updates, I was finally driven to Linux for good, which is awesome. So we now have three uh, laptops in our home, and we have connected to, our t- to, to the TV, and I've converted my laptop to Linux. I converted the laptop, connected the TV to Linux, and my wife said, don't touch my laptop, leave it alone. But after a couple of months of seeing my laptop connected to the TV, she was like, okay, you can put that Linux thing on my laptop now. So he's, he's like, this is the real seal of approval. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah. And he says, I have a three-hour commute to and from work every day, so I listen to every Linux podcast that I can get my hands on. But, of course, Destination Linux, Ask Noah Show, DOS Geek, and the Linux, This Week in Linux get priority. And, yeah, and finally, Darn after... straight they do. Of course they do. And after distro hopping for just over a year, I've settled on Zubuntu and XFCE. He said, in the end, my reasoning is even if you have a high-end machine, why waste resources on running the DE? 
Exactly. What a smart person. We've been saying that for years. He says, so my question is, right now, I achieve all of my daughter's... Achieve? Anyway. Archive. Archive. There we go. He says, right now, I I archive all of my... uh, I almost said it again. Ah, I got to do the edit. I don't want to do an edit. (laughs) No one just lost it. (laughs) He did. (laughs) He's making me edit. Rude. Stop it. I'm surprised no one didn't just change it back to achieve. Right now, I archive all of my daughter's photos on DVD-R discs. I know that that is not a good option in terms of longevity. Uh, if I don't want to use the cloud or run a NAS server, uh, is my best choice to back up a normal external spinning drive? If so, aren't there questions about reliability for spinning drives as well? <laughs> so what's your thought, Michael? Uh, uh, well, my thought is do not read. Keep up the great archive. <laughs> And for those people who can't see what's happening, is my Michael's trying to read the email, and we're changing its contents as he's talking. But, but you know what? It, this is a, this should really speak as much as we pick on Michael. Speak to his professionalism. Yeah. Notice the entire email came out as it was originally written because he's able to pre-buffer, ignore the yeah. changes. That actually is impressive, Michael. Read out and then not break character. I mean, that's pretty good. So uh, to answer your question. Uh, I would say, and I'm interested to hear what you guys think, I'm a big fan of Blu-rays. There are specific Blu-rays that are designed for archiving purposes, and so they estimate that they'll last hundreds of years. Now, we don't know because we've not had a Blu-ray for hundreds of years and tried to recover data off of it, so time will tell. But uh, that is what's known to be the the best choice scientifically for storing data long term because we know hard drives don't do it. We know that flash drives won't do it. We know that flash media in general won't do it. And we know that regular optical discs won't do it. Uh, what do you guys think? I guess I took his question as more when he talked about not wanting to run a NAS as a choice and not wanting to put sure. things in the cloud. I think your Blu-ray idea is a good one and certainly better than the DVDs, which, you know, because you can hold just a lot more data on there. Mm-hmm. Um, all drives, to answer his question, have the ability to fail when he was talking about the difference between spinning and solid state. So really, there are drives that are specific in the solid state realm, as well as the spinning drive realm for enterprise level backup solutions. And really the difference between those drives, there's a bunch of things you could go over, but the main core difference is they test them a lot more, the mechanics are a lot solid and they're slower as a general rule because they keep a more consistent spin rate. So instead of spinning up really fast, they basically maintain generally it's around 5,400 RPM in the spinning realm. Um, and they're generally not as fast as the SSD, your SSDs that consumers would buy for non-backup purposes. But both of them are very reliable options for you to put data on. The problem is, like, even with Blu-rays or anything, if you get a bad backup or the disc gets scratched or the drive goes bad and you only have one backup solution, whether you choose Blu-ray or drives, you're going to put yourself in a really bad scenario. So if you're going to do a Blu-ray route, you need to make multiple backups and you need to test those backups after you're done. If you're going to go to the hard drive route, you can get, especially, um, I, I have a hard time suggesting used, but if money is an issue, you can get a lot of enterprise level drives like the um, Iron, what is it, Iron Wolf and, and other drives that were taken out of enterprise machines. They still have a lot of life in them. And you could get those used usually for pretty cheap and have multiple drives that you're backing your data up to. It would be better to do a RAID in a NAS solution, but he specifically said he doesn't want to. So in that case, have two drives. One you back up to both, and that way if one fails, you have a backup solution. Or do Noah's suggestion and just use Blu-ray, which probably would be cheaper 
than mine, but the, don't focus so much on solid state versus spinning, which is more reliable. It's really the class of the hard drive that's more important than the, the differentiation between spinning and solid state because they both can have a lot of life. I don't know if I entirely agree with that. Uh, I agree with most of it. I think that th- every test that we have for long-term data reliability shows us that spinning disks outlast SSDs, right? Uh, if you look at like, especially like the WD reds or the blacks or even the purples that are designed for security use, like they go years and years and years. Whereas I think the recommended swap for SSD is, I want to say three years if they're in use. Yeah, potentially. But that what you're really talking about in those studies is generally the drives. And this has gotten a lot better over the years, the spinning drives versus the solid mm. state in the consumer realm. When you start going into the networking realm, there are a lot of servers today that you can buy from the big enterprise suppliers that come with solid state now because they've improved it a lot. Oh, sure. Um, So, but yeah, at the end of the day, though, I think you would agree that either way, you're going to have to have multiple backup. Whether you go hard drive or Blu-ray, you need having one solution, like one disk is your backup, right? and then waiting two months in between and then burning another. If that other backup doesn't work, you're in big trouble. So you really need... I would I would tell you for data isn't in three places it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So Which you, is you why they have to turn back up, back up, and then back up again. So whether you, I, I think you should go with a NAS solution though. I think you should look at a Synology NAS or something like that. That, that the consumer level that's just two RAID drives in a RAID configuration, and it and it basically will set all that up for you. I don't think you should write off NAS. Um, you may be thinking like some of the free NAS stuff and things that me and Noah talk about. Those are overkill for most consumers, but fun to play with. Um, but you can get consumer level backup solutions with drives that are very reasonably priced and will at least give you some redundancy. Absolutely. The Antegros project it comes to an end after seven years and 931,000 unique downloads later, the Antegros project comes to an end. Now the project, st- the project leaders rather state that we no longer have enough free time to properly maintain the distro. Um, they say this quote, We came to this decision because we believe that continuing to neglect the project would be a huge disservice to the community. Taking this action now, while the project's code still works, provides an opportunity for interested developers to take what they find useful and start their own projects. Now, the good news is that existing users will continue, continue to be able to use their systems and they'll continue to receive future updates directly from Arch. Now, it's sad to see this project end and hopefully the very talented developers will be able to continue their other projects in open source. My thought is, is there somebody going to step in to help out with this uh, and maybe pick this project up, or is that not on the table? Um, would the developers of Arch permit somebody else who wants to step in and say, hey, I, we would like to come in and, and continue the Arch legacy? We've seen that happen a number of times in, in, pre- in other projects. Is that something that's an option here, or do they want, are they dead set on sunsetting the project so that nobody else can can use their name or infrastructure or or you know anything but the reality is is there another distro that does what arch does well or, I mean, excuse me antegros and i'm not sure that there is it's it's actually interesting because antegros is a was it was was like one of the first ones to do what they did now there mm-hmm. are a couple that are competing in that that space but not in the same mm-hmm. way 
Yeah. And there are there actually Each is one, just out of curiosity. Well, there's Arco Linux. They're doing a similar thing where you get it's a quicker access to install, and they have different ways where different approaches where you have like the more uh, done stuff for you, and then like in stages you get to like the stuff that's doing a lot less. Where like and and Intergos has a similar approach, but they had it all in one installer, so it's kind of the it's kind of similar but not the same. And Intergos mm-hmm. uh, is uh they've actually stated that they are not going to keep. They're not going to let anyone take the name over and take over the existing project because that would make people think that it's the same people working on it, and they don't want to. And, and no, none That's of the three point. are going to be involved at all. So I don't know if it is. I don't know if it is. Can we debate that for a moment? I, I don't know that it is a good point. Um, the whole idea, the benefit of open source, the way that we sell it to other people, is that you can't get locked out of the story. You know, this is available. Well, you whatever. can't get locked out, but the brand is different. So, like, they, all yeah. the source is available. All of the infrastructure there, the they're already you, giving it to people. If you go out in the forum, because I see what you're saying, Noah, and you're, you're right. You're not. You're definitely not wrong here. But so I think you make some really good points, Noah, on that. My, my only thought is because this project's been around for a while, people searching on the Internet archives will see Antergos. They'll go, hey, this, you know, all these people are recommending it is a fantastic distribution. Um, they'll get information on it that's no longer accurate because maybe the new developers that take it and grab the name and everything aren't very good. Now, if they keep their name and just release the source code, which is essentially what they've done, somebody can come in and rename it the new Antergos or something and um, you know, still be able to benefit from all the code and everything that's worked there but not have the potential for confusion and you know somebody... <laughs> Let me ask you this. What do you think is more detrimental to the community? Do you think it's more detrimental to have no project at all or no searchable project? Let's say the project is rebranded and it's called, I don't know, Ryan Linux. And that's the replacement for Arch. And nobody can find Ryan Linux because essentially they've started a brand new distro. And uh, obviously the Integros community is not pushing people towards Ryan Linux. Maybe it gets out to a few people, but not many. And so people go and they they discover this idea of Integros Linux they go to install it. They go to play it that they realize the project's dead. And then they just go, oh, okay, all right, that's it. Is that more? Is that not more of a detriment to the community than the possibility that somebody else would, would step up to take on an open source project and then run it into the ground? And I guess the follow-up question to that would be, do we, is that something that we see in the community where people pick up a project and run it to the ground? Or do you find that most people that, that latch onto a project, they do it out of, a, out of, a, out of an abundance of passion for it? And so... Typically, when somebody picks up a project and takes ownership of it, they they tend to to move the needle forward and do almost a better job in a sense because they have a renewed sense of passion. And here's where you're wrong, and I'm going to prove it in one sentence. Hannah Montana Linux. Uh, the people who took it over have done nothing with it, and it's the greatest distro ever. Was the greatest? It was distro the greatest made. distro, and now it, now it's uh, that's a good point. <laughs> You know, I, I can't. I think you could probably spend time arguing both ways. I am happy that this team, when they released it back, basically, you know, they're killing their packages off of it. You're going to, they give people the ability to continue to use Antergos by moving, shifting everything to pure Arch. Mm-hmm. Antergos was kind of known as the closest to actually installing Arch. Mm-hmm. So it, it probably out of the it Arch really is Arch. Yeah, well, I mean, it's more, it's a little more, but it's compatible with 100% compatible with Arch. But they have their, they had, they had so much uh, customizations and stuff that 
it, they wouldn't consider themselves just arch because it's, it's not just. Yeah, an installer. I, I get that. There's I get that there's a definition difference. But when you compare it to something like Manjaro, I mean, it, it the oh, yeah. reason that they're going to be able to continue yeah. to get updates is because they're literally coming from arch. It's literally right. some theming and, you know, yeah. it's it's the, they're they They have an extra layer on top that was in Tergos and the other parts were all arch like underneath. Right. And that's why, like, I think this is like probably the most interesting project ending because of how gracefully they do, they're doing it. Because they're mm-hmm. they're making it where when you transition, you're going to back to Arch, so your your system is not crash and die or anything. You just become right. you come you become using a different distro. Yeah. So am I just weird for for not being happy that there's that there's not well, even an opportunity for it's not i'm not, I'm not happy that they're getting rid of it i think Intergos is a great project and that's it's sad well, that's, that it's going away is that, is it really graceful to like here the, here comes the end like and we're well they, they're doing it when the code is still available there's there's people who would just like ignore it for months or, ye- or a year and then all of a sudden hey we're not doing it anymore where they're they're just ta- they're preemptively saying we're not going to be able to have time to do it, so we're just going to we're going to stop mm-hmm. working on it. However, here's the 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 source code. Here's all the stuff that you need to fork it if you wanted. And if no one decides to fork it, it will st- the, all of the users will still have a path to continue with mm-hmm. switching to Arch because it and will automatically because they're building transition phases where it's going to automatically go to Arch. I, I, I guess that. So I was just saying, and some people in the community have already said that they're, they're going to be carrying it on. So yes. what would be interesting is. If we can make a little note somewhere in six months' time, let's all search for Antigos and do we find the new one? Yeah, that'd be interesting. interesting. And, and the the new project is being made by the community from Tergos. Like all of the people who are making this, it's it's codenamed Endeavor, but there's actually they they're going to rename it and make it some, like when they make a new distro, they're currently having like a, a like a suggestion phase of new options, and mm-hmm. there's there are they are making a new version, and all the people who are involved in this. Uh, well, not everybody. There's like six or seven people involved in this process, and most of them are moderators from the Intergos forum. So, like, it's there is a lot of community management is, is being uh, switched over to the same for like kind of pretty much the same people, except for the developers are going to be different, and they're also getting help from a Reborn OS developer. So, like, they're, they're it's they're, the the project is not necessarily. Um, dying in that sense because you still have the users are still having a path and the overall community is going to still have a source to go to if they want to switch over it's just the branding of Intergos would not be continued so one of the things that first came to my mind when you were talking about the project continuing on michael is you know we've talked about this before in prior episodes i know it's a little controversial but sometimes these projects kind of Dying that creates a opportunity for more consolidation. Now, Antigos was a not just a you know theme on top of a distro and some of the stuff we've talked about before that maybe they need to consolidate efforts. But should the community instead of going off and creating another Antigos named Endeavor or whatever it will end up being named, just go focus on Manjaro or something along those lines and take their incredible talent and consolidate efforts versus spinning another. Arch-based distro out there. I mean, at this point, uh, you, it's, there's a, that's a valid argument, and I'd say that that if when Intergos first started, there was nothing like it. Like there was some Arch derivatives, yeah. but there was nothing like that trying to be you know an easy installer for Arch. And then uh, then it kind of morphed into its own uh, presence of being a separate distro while still technically being 100% compatible. And then there was other distros that that popped up. And if if they were to have ended earlier. I would have said probably it would be a shame for them to go 
because there weren't wasn't that many options. But now there's like I don't know ten different things that are kind of trying to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Interagos was what did it the best. Um, but I think that if they were to developers were instead of to try to make a whole new thing, they were just to transition over to something like Arco or something like that. It would mm-hmm. be maybe more beneficial to the community. Um, but at the same time, uh, I, you'd also have to find a project that's willing to embrace all of that community because they'd also need to be able to sustain the amount of users and stuff. Yeah, and and the other difficulty is going to be as well. Do you do you then leave your beloved um, Antigos, go over to the Manjaro um, community, and just become a member, or do you take over Antigos, make it into something else, and become one of its leaders? Because all of your ideas and all of your all of the ways that you want to see it moving forward, if they don't fall in line with what Manjaro want to do, you're going to have an uphill battle the whole time trying to get your ideas imposed upon the Manjaro community. Whereas if you take over the project and go your own way, you can now take it where you want. So I think that's one of the main difficulties where you have people won't all collaborate together because they've got different ideas and one wants to go that way and one wants to go that way and someone wants to go uh, south and someone wants to go north. And, you know, you'd you'd end up with these, this room of 50 people trying to make a decision. Whereas a room of five people can make that decision that much quicker. Yeah. I just think all of that talent, if you put it, so I personally believe rolling distros are the future of the Linux desktop. Now I know nobody's going to be on bandwagon with me yet, but eventually I think you will. OpenSUSE Tumbleweed uh, definitely is one of those situations where they're taking a rolling distro, offering a lot of testing um, and, you know, prior to releasing and have done some, a lot of work improving the reputation of rolling in that way. If you take a community and you threw them around Arch, something like that, and they could all test these packages and do some kind of Manjaro's purpose, but have so many more people available and knowledgeable enough to test the packaging and things before it gets released in the rolling model, then you just have so much opportunity to really, you know, um, I don't know, improve the adoption of Arch. Because ultimately, the reason people don't use Arch, pure Arch, which is amazing and amazingly stable to this day, my machines run it, not one issue at all, is because the installation. They don't want to install it. It's too much of a pain. Then you come in here and you have Manjaro and they hold stuff back to do testing, but they probably need a lot more people to test if you're going to have an effective rolling model. And I think that for the adoption of Arch to really take off to the levels that you see in other distributions, you have to have that testing model set up in a way that is, you know, in a massive scale. That's the only way a rolling model works. You have massive amount of testing that happens very quickly across the community. So Arch, Arch especially being separated into the talent being separated into all these different projects is extremely harmful to its reputation and its stability capabilities versus convergence here a little bit. So I really hope that the Antigos developers themselves, along with the community, consider looking at existing Arch projects, whether it's Arco or Majaro, whatever, and look at adopting that because I think so much more could happen in the Arch realm because it is absolutely amazing that so many people don't get to see because of the installation process. Yeah, I think that that's a valid point. And I think that they, it's interesting because in Tergos, if it was what, if it was what people thought it was, it would have been able to survive much more reasonably. 
And I think so. And the distros, any distros that is like trying to create that thing, they should focus on at least if they're not going to consolidate with other projects, they should at least consolidate what they're doing. Because Intergos was great, but it was a lot of work for a small team. Because they mm-hmm. had multiple DEs, they had customizations for all of the DEs. They had various different structures of how, like, what you brought in the AUR from this from the installer. Like, they had their own custom installer that they wrote. They had uh, two different installation live ISO options. Like, they had all these things, but everyone always considered them as the installer, the easy installer for Arch. And that's mm-hmm. like the basically everyone that called it that, even though it was completely separate and, and how much they changed, like they changed so much that they turned themselves into a different distro. Uh, if they were to actually can keep the idea of doing just an installer for Arch and they were making more, more people accessible to work on Arch and to be testers for Arch, if they were to do that and if the new project that comes comes from it, if there is one, then if they were to do that focus solely on doing that portion and not trying to contain everything that it was, I think that, that would be an equally good outcome of the developers switching over to uh, another another derivative of Arch because it, this way they would still have the, the mass, mass usage of testing and everything but doing it directly for Arch. I mean, the Arch community might not be receptive to that, but I think overall it would be beneficial to them to have those testers. Yeah. I also think it's important just to end on this one. Make sure you're supporting the distros that you like out there financially, code base, getting involved in the forums. And if you have none of the ability to do any of that, you can at least say thank you to the developers on a regular basis for the work that they do. If you want to see these projects continue on, because we're we end up covering a lot of the graveyard discussions on distros lately. And if you want to see them continue, a lot of it's going to require people to get more engaged and not just post something when something's wrong. And I think that could go a long way if, if you have a distro you love and, and keeping the developers engaged for it because they're not doing it for the great amounts of money they're making. So whilst we're sad to see Antigos come to an end, uh, there are still a, a plenty of Arch-based distros out there that we've been talking about. Um, and there's also a, a very special select area for pen testers. And Black Arch has a new release. So Black Arch is a or Black Arch is an Arch-based pen and security research distro with over 2,000 tools at its disposal. So some of the key features of this new release include that they've added more than 150 new tools. They've added the Jedi Vim plugin. They've updated basic Vim plugins. They're including the Linux kernel 5.1.4 and the ISO file cleanups and tweaks. Um, they've got an updated Black Arch installer to version 1.1. Updated Black Arch tools and packages, including config files. Updated all system packages, window manager menus, awesome Fluxbox, and Openbox. So if you're into the world of uh, penetration testing and security testing, I'm guessing this is going to be uh, a good solution for you. Um, as I think I've said before, the last time I tried to do anything remotely like this, I ended up DDoSing myself off the internet. So I don't go anywhere near these types of programs. I'm sure some of you guys know what the tools are about and how to use them. So who's going to give us a bit more information? So I I think this one's kind of interesting. You know, I get to thankfully spend uh, some time with Bo and, and see some of the tools that he utilizes for pen testing and security research. And it's just fascinating 
it's fascinating to me with looking at this distro specifically, but it's also the same with Kali and others that the sheer amount of tools available to do security and pen testing, 2,197 tools. Do you even get to uh, uh, use more than a hundred of those? I, I'm not sure. Uh, usually when I'm talking to Bo, it's, I think he kind of switches between about 10 tools, but I guess knowing you have 2,197 is neat. Um, the thing I, I thought was kind of cool about Black Arch, some people think it's cool, some will, is that it does just follow the Arch install process. And so they're not trying to create, they, they, this is a very, like you said, Zeb, where you tried to do a pen testing suite and you DDoS yourself. This is not something you want everybody to necessarily go and download and try to use as their desktop. And, you know, that can create all kinds of issues. So by having that difficult Arch installation still in your way, meaning a lot of it going through the terminal, um, probably keeps a lot of noobs out of there and people just from nuking their own system <laughs> or their own internal network. Um, so really what they're doing here is they're taking Arch and they're just packaging it with a bunch of tools that are specific to pen testing. Um, since we do talk about accessibility a lot, being that this is pure Arch, you would have to use something for install like Talking Arch um, or install eSpeak or speak up screen reader, but they had no documentation on accessibility there. So that would be something you'd have to go and do all on your own if you were interested in using this and need those accessibility options. But um, ultimately, Black Arch just seems like a Arch-based distro with a bunch of tools. Yeah, and it's also really cool the fact that it's it's because it's so close to Arch that you can have an existing Arch uh, system and just install the Black Arch repo yeah. and pull in the stuff that you want. So and you can actually nice. kind of convert it to Black Arch if you wanted to. So that that's a pretty cool feature that they have. And I think that it's it's also worth noting that the just give it like the fact that they, you know people are saying you were saying um, that they, they don't use that many tools, but there's so many available, right? Mm -hmm. And there's just one release they added 150 new tools or more than that. <laughs> and it's like it's that that's just it's kind of ridiculous. Like I've I've actually when I when I did stuff like this uh you know, not not like professionally, but I've 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 dabbled in it. I only used maybe ten at the most, and and like there's like most like Metasploit is one of the biggest ones to use, and uh, and it's it's just having that you kind of have most of what you need, but yeah. the, the, the having the ability to switch to all these these different tools is a really cool feature, and I think that uh, Black Arch is um, is probably as far as like the installation thing goes, I think that it's. It, it kind of would be better if most distros like this were like it, like because yeah. of like uh, Kali Linux is a very popular distribution and it is it's very popular in the hacking world. But it's also very popular in the people who want to become hackers. And the first time they ever use Linux is is Kali Linux, and then the, they try to install it to their system, and then all of a sudden they break their Windows or whatever, like because it's not meant for that. So, uh, right. like if it wasn't as easy to install, that might be like a you know a, a barrier to entry for people. But it's and they actually kind of realized that themselves, the Kali Linux people, because they're, at one point it was based on Ubuntu, and as soon as they did that, it, the the floodgates just opened of people who should not be using the system. And after they after like I think a year of that happening, they were like, okay, we're done with that. We're not using Ubuntu anymore. Yeah. And they switched away a yeah. thing back to Debian and something. And so it was like it's an interesting point that you made about the, having this method of installation because there are other pen testing t uh, distros as well that uh, have a different philosophy of making it difficult. And in this, I think that they probably all should, at least for the installation. Like maybe using it shouldn't be difficult, but the, the installation yeah. part. If maybe. you can make it through the install gauntlet, you've earned your right to use the tools. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
So last week we had Richard Brown on the show and he was talking about to us about OpenSUSE. It was a fantastic interview. And thank you to our community, especially for all the incredible feedback you provided on the video. Obviously, uh, you enjoyed it a lot. And I'm sure him looking through the comments and seeing how awesome the Destination Linux community is um, per- certainly uh, encourages uh, guests like that to come back on the show in the future to share stuff with us. Well, um, we did want to officially in the news cover the fact that OpenSUSE Leap 15.1 has been released out there. And so we talked about it a little in the interview. Definitely recommend you check out our prior episode with that. But just for uh, anyone who was not able to hear that episode or wanted some more specifics on OpenSUSE Leap, it is kernel 4.12 with graphics hardware supported by 4.19 kernel via backports. So Richard said something in an interview very interesting, which actually was good advice for me because being on the rolling release bandwagon, generally when I go into a distro, I'm looking for what's the latest kernel number. I want it to be on five dot something, right? Um, but SUSE does something interesting. They will use an older kernel like the 4.12 but they are very quick at getting the hardware backports, hardware enablement stack included into the 4.12 from newer kernels like 4.19. So basically you get all of the benefits from the hardware side into a much more, a much older in age, but stable kernel. So Michael, what are your thoughts on that? This is something we've talked about with, Ubuntu as well, but, and I don't know the timing between the two, but Ubuntu seems to take a long time to get those hardware enablement stacks in. Yeah, Ubuntu takes about six months, and the the OpenSUSE Leap's release cycle is once every year or so, but they do their updates to the kernel more often than that. So they just do like right. a snapshot and say, here's a snapshot of this is the new version, because they, they do like, for example, 15.1 was based on uh, SUSE Linux Enterprise was SP1, which was, uh, or SLE. Um, we, we, I noticed that last, last week we didn't say what SLE meant, but we used the term a lot. Uh, but like they, so you, they use the service pack one and that's why it's called that, but that's because they are transitioning to that phase of improving certain packages, but they don't need to improve. They don't need, you don't, you don't need to actually like update absolutely everything because with a lot of people who want to get the new version of the kernel, they're really just looking for the hardware parts. That's right. Yep. So if if they were to if they were able to use this and get the hardware stuff without having to update their entire kernel, it makes it easier for them to update. So they get them much faster, but at the same time, not it's not like incredibly fast. It's not like a rolling release or anything, but they do update it much faster than like normal. So even if you have an LTS thing, which basically Leap is an LTS distro, you can still get kernel updates um, much much better, much faster than other distros that do like an LTS based. Like with Debian, you're not going to get those updates. Uh, or if you're going to do stab- stable anyway, and with yeah. with Ubuntu LTS starting with 18.04, you could get those updates, but they still take six months because they come from the next six months release. So like the next one that's 19 like 19.04 just came out, uh, and they I don't think they've actually got the hardware stack in. I know they, it's in the repos, but I don't know if it's actually been pushed out through this the enablement stack yet. Uh, so it might be like a month or two after the new release comes out. So it's like six to eight months, depending on, you know, how, how fast it happens. So, Mm -hmm. but it's still cool that they're doing it. 
it's just interesting that they're doing they're doing an approach where they're just pulling in the specific hardware stuff for the for the older kernel and i didn't even know that that was possible and to that degree of getting yeah like pulling in that much stuff to a much that much older kernel and still having stability and all that stuff and still getting the support like that's pretty cool Mm -hmm. what i found interesting about this is they have made leaps and bounds and improvements um, Mm -hmm. on on the os i remember i had it installed before and because of one of our uh, our patrons who's a, an avid OpenSUSE uh, user, I went originally with OpenSUSE Leap. And then didn't like the fact that the NVIDIA drivers were a bit older, the kernel was a bit older, some of the packages were a bit older. So I tried upgrading to Tumbleweed. And that was that did not go well. This time, however, Leap 15.1, moving it up to Tumbleweed was a breeze. Nice. Take out the old Leap uh, repos, put in the tumbleweed repos, run a couple of commands. And what I liked about it is for me, the instructions were idiot proof. It said, <laughs> once you've done this, this will happen. So write this down first or take a photograph of it or have another laptop ready. Cause once it does this, you're not going to have a system. You're going to have to drop down to the terminal and then do this. And I followed all the commands and within 15 minutes, I was back up and running on um, open tumbleweed. So huge improvement in in that type of um upgrade not that i would suggest you install leap and then move it up to tumbleweed but i wanted to try it because i had such a bad time last time around and this time it was a breeze and i've got the kde version it's it's good it really is good rock solid um and I, it's another one of those ones that i could see myself using if everything else went away i would have no problem going to tumbleweed kde nice Noah, any thoughts? I I I'm gonna I'm gonna keep my mouth shut, I think, for the time being. I have played with it a little bit. I still tend to see Seuss's baby red hat, and I think that's not popular among the Seuss force folks, and I also think it might not be fair because I kinda have a I kinda have a built in bias to, to, to my beloved red hat. So and is this an experience because I talk about this in my one of my recent videos. The, mm-hmm. One of the things I find um a lot of people who've been in Linux for a while do is first of all, it's great that their heads are filled with all this knowledge that I can zap and steal. But mm-hmm. one of the things I notice about people who've been in Linux for a while is they tend to hold on to old yes. things. So well, they, they you- test the distro out four years ago. They right. had an issue for the next 20 years. They're like, hate it. Don't like it. We'll never use it again, but they never give it that chance to get. Cause they yeah. have I, I would say it's for me, it's not so much that it's, it's just that I have, I have become so comfortable and because I have professional training in, in one way of doing things. That makes sense. So that's not to say that any other way is wrong, but when I, when I try to get myself to, to follow those same tracks, I go, this, there's, there's way easier, quote unquote, better ways to do this thing. And so it's difficult for me to relate. So what I have to do is continue to remind myself that, uh, there are a bunch of different approaches. And even if approach doesn't work for me, it's good for other people. So to, to Zeb's point, right? It sounds like that really made an impression on him. And if his distro of choice goes away, he's got his, his second in line. I yeah. think that's a really good thing. And it means that it's going to make both his primary distro. I, I, is a peppermint OS is what you use. Zeb? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So if it, it's going to make, it's going to have, it continues to raise the bar for peppermint OS now, right? Because they have to do a better and better job to be able to stay ahead of what he, what is a known quantity with Seuss for him. 
Um, and for me, it just means that Red Hat has to continue to iterate to, to, to stay above what I know is going to be a, a, somebody that's hot on their heels. So I think it's a good thing. I just... Uh, yeah, you have your yeah, preference. Yeah. I have my preference, and so I just feel like if it's, not, if it's not beneficial to the discussion, then just, you know, mm-hmm. absolutely keep your mouth shut kind of a thing. So we have some really interesting news coming out from the XFCE team. So it's, yeah. it's been a significant amount of time, about four years or so since they released XFCE 4.12. So, you know, it's it's due for another release. And they have announced that 4.14 is now at a pre-release stage. So they're looking at maybe having a release sometime in August. But they do the whole, it's done when it's done, so we'll release it when we're ready uh, approach to releases. Which is a completely valid approach to doing it. It's just, uh, it's been a significant amount of time, and they... XFCE, Not in XFCE world, it's like dog years there. Four it's, years. it's been slightly longer than their usual Four years average. in XFCE world is like three days in human time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fair. Uh, but this is actually pretty cool because the, like, this is a huge update when the, what's coming. So the 4.14 versus 4.12 is uh, all of the, basically the entire stack of XFCE switching to GTK3. So they're going to be like retooling the entire structure of with the, the new toolkit version. Yeah. So they're going to have like U- UI improvements overall. They're going to have Wayland support. They're going to have high DPI scaling added. All kinds of benefits that sw- that use for switching to uh, switching to GTK and getting the, the newer versions of everything makes it a lot more reasonable to have uh, you know have XFCE on much newer hardware. So you could get all the benefits of having like a high DPI monitor and everything like that. So as the XFCE fan of the podcast, Ryan, what are your thoughts on this? Well, this is a lot of, there's a lot of work in here that are, you know, sometimes when you you love plasma, but sometimes people will make a point and you're like, yeah, okay, I can't deny that that sucks in plasma, right? Right. The same thing happens with XFCE. I love XFCE, but I cannot deny that it gets, it takes a really long time to get updated, but that's part of its you know, purpose. So I don't, I'll usually defend that and say, yeah, but it's stable and it, and it always works and you can always uh, utilize it. But there are other things that I can't really defend. Some of that is the flickering issues that can occur. Um, and they have finally worked on fixing that to provide, um, you know, the flicker free experience, which is huge. The high DPI support is something that's hard to support for scaling uh, if people complain about that with an XFCE. And honestly, at this point, if your desktop environment does not support high DPI scaling, you're just frankly behind. You're, 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 not, you're not even current. Um, I, I think it's laughable. And there are too many desktop environments that have taken a very lazy, slow approach to conforming to high DPI, which is a shame in my opinion. We're finally getting there only three years after the technology has been released. This is the type of stuff that keeps Linux behind, in my opinion. So I'm happy that they're fixing all this. I think some of this stuff took way too long. I'll be honest. I love XFCE. I love the work that they do. It's one of my favorite desktop environments. It's my home. It's the first desktop environment. When I fell in love with Linux, I was like, this is it. I love it. Um, but at the same time, there's some there's some valid thing issues there, and they're fixing it. And um, I just think it took too long for some of this stuff to come in. And I really think the XFCE team needs to find a way. I get that, hey, we take these long release cycles before we add in these features. I get the idea of it. It's a little too slow. And probably a lot of that has to do with not enough people contributing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think if more people were to go in there and contribute, because I know I'm not the only XFCE fan. Every time I go on to a um, 
you know, an, into a YouTube channel that's live or anything. And they'll always talk about XFC, how many people love it, but how many people are actually taking the time to contribute to it, either financially or through code or through testing and things. Cause I, XFCE is a uh, amazing desktop environment. It just takes way too long to get updates out. Yeah. I mean, that's what, an interesting point you- also because there's Ubuntu agree with you. So the, some of the developers on, on XFCE are also a part of Ubuntu and they started releasing 4.13 development stuff in Ubuntu for the past couple of releases. Yeah. What do you see the primary purpose of XFCE? Like, where do you see, where's the, where's the place where you're like, if I'm going to use XFCE, this is the place I use it. You know, I think any time that you want, I think there's any any case, I think people like yourself would love it as a lightweight solution, right? Because you're, you're into the Plasma platform. So you've mm-hmm. gotten used to going through Plasma settings and all of that. It was interesting. I think it was Biddle or another show I was listening to live and they were talking about Plasma and somebody was saying, but it's so annoying to get Plasma set up, all the settings and things to try to find them and change them. And that's my experience with Plasma. I love it. I'm on it right now. It's one of my favorite desktop environments, but it is annoying to find out where they've stuck each setting randomly in places. Or in, in, let me give you an example. In XFCE, if you open the menu and you want to resize it, you go to the corner, you click it, and you move the menu. Now you have a bigger menu. In Plasma, you're going to have to right-click it. You're going to have to go into the settings of the panel and then change the sizes there. Or if you want to change the time for your clock, you right-click the time, you set it to 12 hour. It's an option right there. You don't have to go into any other sub menus. Boom, you're done. You want to add another panel as a launcher, right click, add second panel. It's there. Everything is super simple in XFCE. So I like new users. I think it's perfect because you get to see the customization capabilities of Linux without getting lost in the complexity that ADE can sometimes provide um, or things that you can accidentally click on and mess up. It's also fantastically light. Now, Michael will argue plasma is just as light. And uh, in some it's not just as light, but it's it's not as it's not heavy that people claim it to be. But it's not just as light. So, yeah, what I, I guess what I found in this, I, I would love to take credit for this. It's truth is, it's not my idea. I had an I had a chance to interview Fred Gleason from Paravel Systems, who builds. Uh, computers with Linux that he sells as very, very expensive appliances, you know, things that upwards, uh, you know, we're talking things that cost upwards of $10,000. These, uh, when he builds some of these systems, depending on how you spec them out, and he chose XFCE. And I thought that was an interesting decision. And I asked him why. And uh, he laughed at the idea that you would run any sort of production system that, uh, that required, you know, mission critical stability and run something like GNOME on top of it. Uh, and 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 to his point, what we've seen firsthand uh, empirical evidence shows that, in fact, there are some major problems with with KDE or GNOME and stuff. And it works great as a as a day to day thing. But if you need it to run 100 percent of the time and you can't afford for anything in the desktop to crash, uh, I, I, I feel like that's where XFCE kind of begins to shine. I would just have a hard time using it, I think, as a day to day driver because there are so many basic functionality things like the ability to hit a, a a keyboard shortcut and launch something without having to install an additional application. I feel like those are things that take away from a day-to-day desktop use. Now you could do that with an XFC, but you're correct. So some of the, the, some of the critiques I just gave you for plasma can happen with XFCE specific to the more advanced options where they're harder to find. Mm-hmm. Whereas your simpler things are in very easy to find places with an XFC, whereas KDE makes pretty much 
a lot of things pretty difficult. To find. Now, once you, you learn it, it's not difficult, right? Once you How learn it, you're like, you. oh, that makes sense. I right click here. Then it no. gives me another option for panel. Then I click in that and then I go to alternatives. Then I click in that and then I click it. Okay. And no. people are like, hey, it's super simple. But once you learn it, it kind of is. But I think XFCE for your average new user is going to go in there and go, wow, this is far more customizable than Windows and yeah. very easy to navigate, very familiar menu system to somebody coming from Windows still. Um, but all the customization options there. The problem with XFCE, though, when you have a new person coming to Linux is it looks dated out of the box. And a lot of times you don't. That's why I, sometimes I don't recommend Zubuntu or I'll recommend something like Mate instead because you don't want somebody coming from Windows and looking like they're transporting back to 99 to use Linux. <laughs> and depending on the distribution, the way they theme XFCE out of the box, it can look really dated. Yeah, I mean, XFCE by, by default doesn't have a, a real theme. Like, they have, like they've updated their previous theme, but they've had that theme for like 15 years or something. Yeah. So it's still basically the same. But earlier you mentioned how I would be uh, open to admitting where there's some issues and stuff. And you mentioned all these different things with plasmas being the example of how they're confusing and overwhelming. And then they, they but they get is easier after you know how they work. Not really. No, they don't. <laughs> like, they're, they're still weird. They're still weird placements. Like the fact that if you do single click versus double click, you, you would assume that'd be in the mouse at settings, right? Nah, right. it's in de- desktop behavior workspaces. Yeah, because that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny you mentioned that because I got lost trying to change that back recently. And I was like, why is it not in the mouse settings? That's where it used to be, too. And that's what's so weird. Like, it was there. And they were like, and they moved it. And I saw the reason why they moved it. It was like, this makes more sense. How? No, it doesn't. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So anyway, there there are things that uh, they all have. They all have their issues. But I think that one of the things that if if XSCE, as soon as 4.14 comes out and they've upgraded the the structure, and if they were to put some nicer... uh, polish on the actual design of it i think that xfc would be a really solid choice especially for beginners and for people who want like the stable distro structure because i think that it's as far as like functionally it goes it has a ton of potential but it's it, it does need a lot of work on the, the, the let's not forget end. one of the nicest kindest people because to me it really does matter who's behind the code oh yeah even you know and sean davis has to be one of the nicest coolest dudes you'll ever meet i agree yeah he's, he's a great dude the Peppermint OS team has released the latest version of their distro, Peppermint 10. Now, this yeah. version is based on Ubuntu 18.04 LTS and comes with both 64-bit and 32-bit flavors. Some of the main features of this release are kernel 4.18.0-18 with a rolling hardware enablement stack, 18.04 track to eventually roll on Linux kernel 5.x in the future. Updated Xorg stack and video drivers installed automatically if and selected during the install routine. ICE 6.0.2 with isolated profiles for Chromium, Chrome, and Vivaldi. New GUI font DPI settings, utility allowing for adjustments and system font DPI. There's also a whole suite of packages updated for some bug fixes and under tweaks under the hood. But uh, let's not uh, spend any more time uh, telling you about it, uh, how about Zeb, who actually uses it as his day-to-day driver? What do you think, Zeb? And contributes to Peppermint, too. Yeah, I'm a, an admin on, on the forum there, and I, I, I try to end, end help out with the simpler questions rather than the more technical stuff. Um, but with all of the releases that come out with, with, with Peppermint just lately, apart from when we went from 6 to 7, where there was a massive change in the way it all looked, there, is, there are 
just incremental changes that have slowly over the years made it better and better and better. Now, people can pinpoint certain things and say, oh, yes, but such and such had that years ago and such and such had that years ago. But it's just those incremental little changes that we keep making as each version comes out doesn't detract from the previous version. You're not going to suddenly feel lost because it's got a brand new, you know, KDE version on there and they've moved the mouse settings from, from input over to the desktop. It's just additional little tweaks. And for me, as a, as a high DPI user, one of the great things is our, our new little um, font DPI. Now, it used to be easy on XFCE. You'd go into the settings, you'd go into font, and you'd click the little up arrow until you pick the font that you want. But LXDE never had that. So you would actually have to go in and alter a configuration file. So we listened to our users, and Mark paired up with another programmer and they actually built now a little slider which will change your fonts on an lxde sessions desktop just sure, from mate. a gui and it's adding little things like that that for me make it make it a good distribution we also make sure as well i mean okay we've got a bit for me hardcore here and we've moved ourselves onto the hwe kernel within mint install which is our updater you can grab the five kernel yourself, but then you've got to update it yourself and you've got to remember to go in and continually update it. If you stick with what Peppermint give you, it's rock solid, reliable. And as its base updates, so will we update. And um, if I'm honest with you, apart from minor hiccup I had once with NVIDIA, and I think that was NVIDIA's fault because it happened throughout every distro that I was oh, using. What was that, uh, Seb, I didn't hear you. What was it a hiccup with? There was a minor hiccup with uh -huh. nvidia 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 oh, yeah. but he was listening yeah. to very sim very similar to radeon 7 being issued without uefi drivers we're yeah? not talking about that very very similar to um the radeon support not being there in ubuntu because they didn't have the latest i kernel. thought we were talking about nvidia i'm confused so, yeah we're talking yeah, about but nvidia you, well, but sure. if you can have a pop at nvidia i'll have a pop at you know tit for tat and to be honest with you all of this team red and team green is great fun but you use the tool that you want for the job to work that's oh, right oh, ex exactly right. yeah so but but back to the peppermint the thing that i like about it is it is rock solid it does come along and, it, and we do keep making these incremental changes um and i'm actually looking forward now to to, to peppermint 11 um, yeah. when we think about releasing it because we've got a big decision to make do we stay with lxde sessions because let's be honest that's the only thing that's really left major from the old Lubuntu days. Yeah. Everything else we're taking a bit, you know, we're taking a bit from Marte, a bit from Mint, a bit from um, other projects, and we'll cherry pick those items that we think are good and that Mark can meld together uh, uh, and make a whole. And I also have to give out a fantastic shout out to Carl Schneider, who provided our wallpapers again. And Carl's amazing. Yeah, and, and we, we said to him, look, this is what Peppermint 9 looked like, and we loved it, and we want something that makes people feel familiar, but we want it to be different. So instead of the, the arc peppermint, he went with a triangular peppermint, and then he gave us, uh, um, do they call it material designs or something? They were sort of very flat. Material design, yeah. Material design, and he gave us a great um, desktop in that regard, and I used to hate them before, but this particular one, it's great, and I'm loving it. And for me, I stay with Peppermint because it just 
works. And I know that's a bit of a meme now with me that I'll only use a distro if it just works. But since I've been here since 2015, I know I can install it. I can get everything running up in 25 minutes and then I can just forget about it and use it. It's great. Let me ask you, do you suggest when you meet new people coming to Linux, do you recommend Peppermint or the standard Ubuntu Mate like a lot of people use, or what's your recommendation usually? Well, there's a, there's a little bit of standing joke that I've got with Popey at the moment that I'll tell him to go to uh, Ubuntu and use all that um, mountain of knowledge and expertise to get comfortable with uh, Linux. <laughs> and then once, once they've used all the resources of Ubuntu up to learn it, come and join us over in Peppermint. But nice. if I'm honest with you, there would be nothing to stop you installing Peppermint because it's the Ubuntu installer and then running it straightforward. Because at the end of the day, people still get confused and think we run an XFCE desktop. Nice. And we don't. It's very simple. And like you, Ryan, XFCE is my, is my go-to yeah. that I use because very quickly I can set up a three-panel display so I can have my clock in the middle and not yeah. have to worry about spaces so that it keeps it there but then if i get too many on this side of the screen it moves over here and if i get too many icons in my system tray it moves back over here so there's just all these little things and although i'm a i don't class myself as a distro hopper i just like reviewing different distros but it really does pay dividends pick a distro stick with it learn how it works and I'm as familiar now with the KDE settings as I am with the Peppermint settings because I've used it so many yeah. times. So it is just familiarity. And going back to what um, Noah said about his use of OpenSUSE, uh, or in, in his case, Red Hat, mm -hmm. it's what you get used to. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, and on, on, on a lesser scale, it's the, it's the wonderful little chit-chat that's going around at the moment. What's the better file manager, Nemo or Dolphin? Dolphin, of course. It's Dolphin. what you're used to. No, just because I can do better. I can do stuff in Nemo quicker that I can't do in Dolphin. I mean, it's a different thing. You can do it. I just drag it and drop it, and then click move. Whereas in Nemo, I just go right mouse click move to other screen. Now I could probably set that up in Dolphin, but it's already there as a default. I love how we've all learned to counter Michael's arguments because we know that he's going to come back with, "Well, you could run some script or self code it in the background to do that." That's his argument with Plasma, no matter what. No, I know if it if it requires a lot of extra changes, then I I would agree that that's not a valid suggestion for it. But technically speaking, Dolphin is better. Now, I have never heard you, Zeb, talk longer in a segment than this one, which just goes to show. The absolute love you have for peppermint. peppermint. Yeah. I love That's a good it. thing. And just yeah. to finish off, the peppermint forums. Another thing you're not going to want to say in the US. Yeah. They are really, really good. It's only a small team. Um, and yes, you'll get the occasional person who comes up and asks a really strange question and then gets the hump because they don't get an instant answer. Well, there's some of us in America. There's some of us in the UK. There's some of us in Germany. So we're not going to be there 24 seven. Right. There are very few unanswered posts in Peppermint. That's nice. And, and if we have an honest answer for you, it's like, sorry, I don't know. Go and search Ubuntu. Go and search the Arch Wiki. You'll always get told where you might be able to find out the information. And for me, the Peppermint forum is almost as good as the OS itself. Nice. Nice. I, I think that uh, the Peppermint is, has a lot of stuff going for it. Like they have, like it's interesting that they take all these different pieces from various different uh, dis just projects or distros and stuff. It's interesting that, that how they do that and how it uh, works 
seamlessly with all the work they put into it. And I do like the fact that they are now having, they've already, when they released with the LTS, you know, it's been a significant amount of time since the LTS came out. So they didn't, they, they automatically started with the, the enablement stack activated so that they have the latest kernel available in that stack immediately so you don't have the you know wait for the the newest versions to update and everything so that's pretty cool uh but i think the i think my favorite thing about peppermint is ice that Mm -hmm. that is such a cool approach but getting uh like you know site-specific browser uh having a, a a specific application for an individual web app but also having separate sessions for each of these these uh these web apps essentially and let's say you have uh you want to use a specific social network and you have six accounts or something with ice it's just you just set it up you know just rebuild it use the same structure you built for the first one you can just make multiple things and and log into each one of these in the same thing whereas if you were to use chrome uh you you have one session for literally every single thing you use in chrome so that's an, unless you switch profiles which defeats the point of having a separate browser thing so like that is a really nice feature to have and uh, I think that ice is probably my favorite thing. And I think that it's, if you haven't tried peppermint before, or you haven't tried ice, it's definitely worth checking out for this latest release. And Zeb earlier said that he was in looking forward to, or, you know, interested in what happens with peppermint 11, but what about peppermint 10 respin? Yeah. So wh- what's going to happen there? <laughs> well, that's, that may happen in six months time, depending on whether or not something new and exciting comes along. And I'm guessing it will be, and it and it will probably be quite a big release. Thinking about it, because um, XFCE four point one four comes out in August of this year, yeah, which will be five or six months after Peppermint has been re- released. So, hang on, May, June, July, August. Now, maybe a little bit longer. So, round about Christmas time, we will start to bring in those four point one components of XFCE. And, and mold them into in, into peppermint and i'm and i'm really pleased that they're finally going fully gtk3 because one of the things that mark has to spend an awful lot of time on is getting the theming right because you've got bits of theming that's got gtk2 bits of theming that's got gtk3 and he spends a lot of time going in and editing them so that when you choose the peppermint versions they all do try and look uh, uh, as good as they can and, and ICE has come on an awful long way from when it first started. I think it first started and you had Firefox and Chromium. Well, now I think as well, um, or Firefox or something else, but now you can have Chrome, you can have Vivaldi, um, and I think there's another one in there as well. So you can choose the browser of, uh, of your choice. But it's interesting you picked up on that because one of the biggest complaints we get is, oh, I don't know why you've got all that Google stuff in there. I don't know why you've got all that Microsoft in there. It's a shortcut to a, a website. If you don't want it, it's a two-second click away. We haven't bloated the system out. There's no bloat on the system at all because it's just literally a shortcut to the website. And if you don't want it, you can take it away in two seconds flat. Yeah, and I think ICE is, is a really good uh, reason to use Peppermint if you've never tried it. It's like just just try out ICE. It's a really cool solution because you get the benefits of having – like you can yeah. basically create your own web app to desktop app uh, using ICE. So that's really awesome. Okay, so moving on to some software news, um, and Firefox 67 has been released. So Firefox 67 demonstrates improved performance thanks to a number of changes, such as lowering priority of set, of set timeouts during the page load, delayed component initialization until after the startup, 
painting sooner during page load, but less often, suspending unused tabs. Keyboard accessibility has also improved in the latest version of Firefox, with the toolbar and scrollbar overflow menus are now both fully keyboard accessible. Um, and there's lots of other improvements, in, including that users will be able to run different Firefox installs side by side by default, um, so that they can run the beta and the release versions simultaneously. Now, what was really interesting about me and seeing that um, I was going to be reviewing this particular release is I've just recently decided to go and try um, the Firefox beta to get onto the latest and greatest version. And I thought, wow, this um, Firefox 68 is fantastic. The speed is brilliant. Well, it turns out if I'd have just waited for 67 to install, I would have seen that speed increase anyway. Um, and I know it's got an awful lot quicker because for whatever reason, whatever magic, you know, magic machinery they've done, pages do load quicker. You don't have to wait three or four seconds for something to load up. You click the button, up it comes. Okay, you might not see absolutely everything, but you can carry on with your browsing while the other more clever bits install in the background. Um, I might be getting converted back to Firefox because of this. It's great. What have you been using to this point? A mixture of both. Okay. Uh, Firefox is the default browser that comes with Peppermint, so I have to keep keep knowledge of how to use it. But I'm not going to lie to you guys. Chromium has, or Chrome has been my go-to browser for however long it's been out. Now, um, do you use Chrome or Chromium? Google Chrome. Google Chrome. Okay. Yeah. So you're just basically as filthy as you can get. Got it. <laughs> Yeah, because I also dual boot as well. But hey ho, that's on a laptop, not on, not on my own desktop. Michael, you have a, a strangely UK accent. Wow, yeah. wow, yeah, exactly. I was, I've been working on it. No, Michael, you're a huge fan. Noah, you're a huge fan. Before we get to Michael, Noah, thoughts on Firefox 67? Anything in there that uh, made you excited? Um, no, not particularly. I will continue. Here's the thing. I mean, let's be honest. Firefox could release the worst release of all time. It could crash constantly, which it may or may not have done at the beginning of today's show. And I would still use it because I like I'm that much against Google as far as uh, as far as web browser goes. Now, thankfully, I actually find Firefox to do to, to be great. And I don't seem to have all of the hangups and bugs that some other people experience on Firefox. I it works pretty much flawlessly for me 100% of the time. Nice. Michael, what are your thoughts on 67? Uh, there's quite a few things that I'm excited about. Uh, there's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I pay attention to Firefox all the time because I'm a big fan of it and I've been using it since the day it was released. Actually, since it was called Firebird and Phoenix before that. Wow. Yeah. So I never even knew that was a thing. Yeah. They, there was, there was multiple reasons, multiple, like they actually was called Mozilla for a little bit too. It's like the browser, the browser itself. So like there was, uh, there's about a year where they went, went through multiple different names. And I, I've been using Firefox for so long that I basically feel, feel like I know ins and outs of everything that they do. Uh, but this latest version changed something that always annoyed me. And that was the keyboard accessibility was not fully available through like the toolbars. So you couldn't just activate a toolbar and then use the navigation to switch to different icons. You have to use the mouse. And that was really annoying. I mean, basically all browsers work the same way. They don't really have keyboard accessibility through those toolbars. Uh, but there was this one thing where there is the, uh, the overflow menu, which is the menu that you, it's like basically the hamburger menu you click on the far right that drops down all these different options. And those are, those were really good to use because they were all consolidated, but it was really, you had to use your mouse to get to it. 
I made a workaround that essentially allows you to use a shortcut from something else. If you move it into that menu, it'll open that menu. And that's a really weird way of getting around it. But they're like the, the new version has it. So you just easily, you can just open the menu whenever you want with a shortcut. And that is awesome because it makes it so much easier to get to everything because there's also like when I do development tools, uh, like, like when I, there's a lot of development tools you can have in that menu. And the worst thing was that opening it, you'd have to go down to the very bottom where the developer tools were. But in this way, now you can just open that menu, hit the end key, and you now you're on those menus, those tools, and it's super quick. It takes like two seconds to get to the stuff now. That is, it doesn't seem like it'd be a huge benefit overall, but it, saving a lot of time, even just a significant amount of time, even if it's a few seconds, over the course of a thousand times you do it, is a huge, huge improvement for me. And I also like the fact that I can now have both, like you know, beta versions and the existing version running at the same time, and test like all the different stuff that's coming. So, cause I yeah, used to do nightly, yeah, I used to do nightly releases. Uh, and then there was some issues that happened and I was like, oh, now I gotta go all the way back to a beta version instead. And when you switch back and forth, it's a little bit more difficult than you'd really want it to be. But now that you can do both, you can try out everything and not have to worry about you messing up your profiles or any of that stuff. That is awesome too. So I'm a big fan of Firefox. I actually have some videos that I'm working on to, uh, promote Firefox and all the things that I like about it. Uh, one of them is a t uh, t uh, five reasons why I, but Firefox is my favorite browser, and I'm gonna go through like a, a nice list and like I'll, I'm gonna bran branch out some new stuff because I actually learned some new things about Firefox with some a couple of extensions that you can make the containers t uh, tabs even better than they already are. So cool. I'm gonna make a nice. video about that. So that's we'll all know about it in 2022. That is exactly say, look, it. exactly. We'll look forward right. to hearing about Firefox 87 then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It'll, so, it'll be somewhere around there. Zeb, I was curious because you actually sent me a note and said, or, or the group a note and said, look, it's actually as fast as Chrome with video. And I was now, if you've ever used any, Noah talked about the Google services, you know, and, and some of his dislike, which I share that with him uh, immensely. But Google also has done a thing where it seems like Google services like YouTube run much better in Chrome than they ever do in Firefox. But you were saying, hey, I've been playing video content in the new Firefox and it's just as fast, if not faster than Chrome, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be a huge difference for the human eye to see it. So yes, no doubt some clever person like the guy from Foranex will be able to come up and say, well, actually... Chromium or Chrome renders YouTube videos 0.007 seconds faster than mm -hmm. Firefox does. But for your average user, um, you know, I can sit here and like, double click on the, the, the Chrome and then double click on the YouTube and watch the same video and, and see no difference in playback quality. So if there, used to be a, if there used to be a problem in the past, there certainly, there certainly isn't, isn't one now. The only thing that still really bugs me is some of the stuff that Google provide, let's say like Google Hangouts. If you don't use Chrome, you can't use Google Hangouts. Why? Yeah. Why do they not allow? Are they that scared that other browsers might do a better a better job than they are? I think it's trying to pull them into the infrastructure, right? You want um, you want people on Chrome, you want people using G Suite, you want people using Hangouts. And so you penalize anytime you use Firefox to edit a Google Doc. You penalize when somebody wants to use Hangouts and use, you know, something other than Chrome. 
Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I think that's kind of the natural progression if you're Google, right? It's a, it's a progression for terrible, awful companies, yes. And it's it, it reminds me of the days where you go to a website and it says, this is best viewed in Internet Explorer version whatever. Oh, mm. yeah. Yes. No, it's not. Nothing is. Nothing best is, viewed yeah. Internet Explorer. <laughs> yeah. Um, but let's, let's hope that eventually it goes down the same route uh, that, that Windows had to go down, where they they had to say, actually, you've got Internet Explorer, but you can install any one of these. And you had like the Internet the internet browser options, like some of the distros give us now. Yeah, You can go browser selection, and you pick your browser of choice. Yeah. If Google are that sure in their knowledge that they've got a better browser, let people make the decision. Mm-hmm. What yeah. do you want to use, Google or Firefox? And if you are that good, they will naturally gravitate to Google unless they hate the data collection side of things. But, you know, base your surety on your product, not by forcing people to use your browser if you want to give the best performance under certain circumstances. I think think they're, they're barking up the wrong tree there. So next up in the news is a really interesting article. I'm really interested to hear your opinion on it, Michael, Noah, and Zeb. So Huawei is a company that builds fantastic hardware um, from China. They have entered the U.S. phone market. They've entered the U.S. laptop market. They are well known for being extremely competitive in the in these spaces, providing the very high quality devices with the specs that you would expect from the latest iPhone or Android device, but also at a very, very reasonable price, um, which made them very attractive to people. They also are involved in building a lot of network equipment and things like that, which some people aren't familiar with, but they, they do provide equipment for telecom companies, etc. So there's a lot of things that this company has been involved with. But essentially, they have been banned recently from the U.S. Um, I believe this is part of the kind of the trade wars and things that are going on. Uh, but the administration has stopped companies from doing business with Huawei going forward. Now, I had a Huawei laptop. Had It was an AMD-based laptop. Absolutely loved it. Strangely and ridiculously close to an Apple MacBook Pro. Um, you know, like so close that if you put a different logo on it and I handed it to somebody, you would say you just handed me an Apple MacBook Pro and you could not tell the difference until you looked and saw there were more ports and then you'd go, okay, something's off. Because, wow. you know, yeah. <laughs> but in any case, uh, they, you know, so there, there was some, there was some accusations of IP theft between Huawei and things. And all of this is accusations. We don't know what's true or not, but again, holding one of their products, I was like, wow, this This is really (laughs) close. Um, But Huawei has denied these claims over the years. The NSA does not like competition on spying, obviously. So that means that we have a complete (laughs) ban of Huawei products here. Man, you're on a roll today. Hey, I'm just, you know, calling a spade a spade. So Microsoft has taken down its Huawei-based offerings from its website, and Google has denied Huawei access to proprietary components of the Android OS. Essentially, ARM has also, Qualcomm, Panasonic, Intel have all taken down Huawei products, basically from an international perspective, which any technology company really has to be to truly make it. They are completely dead from anything outside of China at this point or any of the mainstream marketplaces that tech companies need to compete in, in any case. So they are now rumored to be releasing their own LOS 
um, to attempt because Android obviously kicked them off, so they can't even use that anymore. This is a major blow to anybody who has spent money on these devices. When I say cheaper, we're talking a couple hundred dollars cheaper. Still, people have spent thousands of dollars on the laptops, thousands of dollars on phones, and now they're basically essentially going to be bricked because they're not going to get the updates and security patches and everything else now that they've been kicked out there. If you don't have ARM, you can't make phones, basically. So by being kicked off by ARM, they can't make phones anymore. Um, some people are saying this is the reason FOSS is so important as an investment for companies. If they would have thought of this ahead of time and had a free and open source version of Android, free and open source hardware, this wouldn't have come up. want to open up the conversation. What's everybody's thoughts on Huawei's demise? Well, isn't there... Isn't there a free and open source version of Android? And my understanding was they're only been barred from getting the Google stuff, not from using well, the true. free and open source. Technically, source. yes, but the AOSP is the the open source version of Android, and it's garbage uh, because wow. basically everything that was useful when the first version of AOSP came out, they ripped out and turned it all proprietary. So, like, you, you, there's no email app, there's no text message app, there's no like basically anything. So mm. that's why Lineage exists. So Lineage OS is great. Uh, it's a great opportunity to have an open source version of Android. However, it still requires ARM. So mm-hmm. e- even if they were wanting to use Lineage OS, they would still need ARM to back them. And yeah. uh, without ARM, they they kind of are in a like. If all of these companies were to have like Intel, Qualcomm, Panasonic, Microsoft, if all these companies had just and even Google not let him have access access to Android proprietary stuff. Even if if all of these companies ignored or, or you know screwed over Huawei, but ARM didn't, Huawei would still have a chance. Yeah. But because ARM is included, that's a huge hit. Well, yeah. you just don't have a. I mean, what other processor is out there? Risk five basically, and it's not really at the point to compete with ARM anyway. Sure, sure, mm-hmm. nothing that competes with ARM. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah, so. and but I've I've got a I've got a generic question here. Um, how fair is it? And maybe fair is the wrong word, but you've got a company, you've got the US, who've said, okay, Huawei, we are going to tell Google you, they cannot supply you anymore. So why should I be affected in Europe? What right have you got as a country to stop me using my phone that I've bought legitimately? It's basically Nothing. trade make your stuff. own processor. Yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you if there was an ARM competitor that was based in the UK and they wanted to supply processors... No, 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 no. ARM is based in the UK. Yeah. Oh, oh they are. ARM is a UK company, yeah, but no, I'm talking about... They learned. I've bought, I've bought this phone. I've paid £800 for this phone, yeah? Are you going to give me the money back, US government? Yeah, no, we. Uh, I talked to the government about that request. <laughs> you've made my phone redundant now. You've now wrecked my £800 phone if all of this doom and gloom happens. Yeah, yeah. so... What's interesting is um, Jacob in our Telegram group here, uh, or Zoom group, is talking about they're still big in Europe, but uh, in the articles I was reading, the UK's top mobile phone networks have stripped Huawei. So some parts of Europe, I guess, are on board with following the US's guidance, and I'm guessing it has to do with some type of treaties and partnerships and trade that they follow suit. Uh, Zeb, because I don't think the U.S. you know 
said, hey, you know, uh, ban this phone or we're going to send missiles over to you. But they, it probably wow. is some trade agreement or something along those lines in which they followed suit because they're they're in trade with the U.S. And also um, there's the stipulation like says that if you don't follow suit that you lose access to using U.S. resources and stuff too. So yeah. like, Well, that would probably hurt. Yeah, yeah. they're forcing I mean, them. There may be one or two companies in the U.K. that have, have stripped them, but certainly um, Tesco Mobile hasn't stripped using them. Three UK hasn't stopped. Um, you know they're still selling them on their websites now. You can still buy a, a Huawei Mate Pro and get a contract out on it for forty nine pound a month. So it's not everybody. It might be one or two. It might be like BT and O two or something, mm -hmm. which is basically just one company. So it's going to take a long time to filter all the way all the way down and all the way through. But let me ask you this question. I mean, there was something quite interesting written in the article here that without any way of distributing their hardware outside of China. I mean, apart from the fact that they can't get their, their, an, an ARM processor, what's going to stop this multi-billion pound Chinese company taking on risk and, and, and getting it ready within a couple of years? <laughs> taking yeah. on their new operating system, which I understand at the moment, they're saying, oh, yes, we're going to have it out in August. And other people are saying, you must be joking. It's never going to be ready in two years, August. Mm -hmm. You won't, if Huawei want to continue to make phones, you won't stop them. They're too big. And you're then going to have, well, it's China against the US. Let's prove to them that we are still the second largest phone manufacturer in the world. And even though the big, mighty, bad US stopped us from doing it, we're gonna we're gonna carry on this Whoa, with the big mighty bad. Yeah, you know, here's the uh, thing. But that's I, what the Chinese people will say. Oh, sure, sure. Them. Yeah, I think it. You know, there is some Huawei is really interesting company. I had to do some research when I bought their laptop, and I remember saying there's a lot of speculation out there about Huawei's involvement in IP theft, and also there's a lot of speculation about them, including you know rumors and things about them, including spy devices inside the hardware and things like this. Do we know if this is just a trade war and U.S. is making all this up as part of the trade war? Or is there actually some legitimacy to the fact that they're making this claim against Huawei and no other company, at least at the moment, uh, with as much pressure as Huawei, that they are indeed tied to the Chinese government and basically are doing things to acquire and take information, that stuff. I mean, that's the thing we don't know, right? Because yeah. nobody has come out and said, here's the proof. Now, there were some people in Huawei that were indicted and jailed recently for mm -hmm. some things. I think it may have been IP theft. So there seems to be some truth and maybe some exaggeration here, yeah. but because we don't know all the cards on the table, um, yeah, I hope Huawei, if they are innocent, finds a way to get their mm -hmm. product out there and pushes some open source method to do it. And that helps yeah. the open source community as a whole. If they're not innocent, then I hope they are crippled, I guess, you know? Yeah. But, but tell me something, there's all this rumor and conjecture, and the U.S. government has found proof. Wouldn't, wouldn't there be some sort of, this is for national security, that we don't actually admit we bought all this Chinese gear, and they can now spy on our inner workings? Wouldn't, wouldn't they be obliged not to tell everybody and just put out one or two few rumors and hope an independent company can find it? Because... You wouldn't want a government admitting they'd been made to look stupid. Well, what do you I'm, think? No, I'm pretty, well, I'm pretty sure there must I, be something in the back. I, I agree. I agree with him. Yeah, 
it's it's a good point about like they wouldn't admit it if they had this the stuff but it it doesn't make any sense because the way this the the policy is written or the executive order was written it wasn't really focused specifically on Huawei it didn't mention their name i don't think but it but because of how it was like wrapped around it essentially just focused on Huawei like they're mm-hmm. the ones that are the target and it's obvious that they're the target because ZTE matches all of the same stuff because they they they're they're a Chinese company they they are in the same industry that they they have they make some very similar products and stuff but at the same time ZTE basically has control over 5G hardware so if you wanted to use 5G then you you need ZTE so if 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 they if they were to have focused this on including all the companies that are relevant or related to this stuff and they included ZTE they would basically make it impossible for the U.S. economy to have 5G phones at that point. So, because because of LTE's, or not LTE, but ZTE's uh, massive control, like not necessarily control, but the the amount of market share that they have for 5G, it's just it's just like it just seems to be an attack to one company. And mm-hmm. if they were going to attack one company, at least just straight up say we're attacking this one company, but they're not doing. They're not. They're not admitting what they're trying to do. And so, I just wish that it would like be more open or give some evidence or do mm. something that makes it reasonable for this action. Yeah, but to Zeb's point, if they give that evidence, perhaps it create a natural national panic because they're so integrated into. The I mean, this executive order world. says it's a it's a form of national security. The reason why they're yeah. doing it is national mm. security, and but they're already actually, admitting it at that point. It's actually interesting. You you should bring up that point, Michael. Then because they're only pinpointing Huawei as such. Let's not forget that your current leader is an ex-entrepreneur. Could there have been something that happened years ago where he was made to look stupid by the chairman of Huawei and this is his roundabout silly way of, or is, am I just like conspiracy theory rubbish now? I don't know. You should take the aluminum fat off, hat off first. <laughs> uh, no, I, who knows what behind the scenes is. My point is I think we need more. I would love to see more evidence because mm-hmm. ultimately I think you love your phone from Huawei, Zeb. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I really enjoyed their laptops, but if they are doing what they are alleged to be doing, then oh, yeah. it's very serious. If they're not, mm. then this is a horrible misrepresentation and ruin of ruining of a company for no purpose other than um you know trying to build advantages unfairly so we'll see what comes out over uh, the next few months and maybe they'll find a way to recover from it this is really interesting the thing that's happening with canonical they have you know the previous versions of their releases i'll say <laughs> They the previous version of releases they made it possible made it much more easy to install the Nvidia drivers, and the latest version that in 1910 it's going to be able to have the Nvidia drivers, making it even easier by including them on the ISO so you don't have to download them in order to install them. So this is interesting because it makes it for people who are trying to install their system offline to have access to the the drivers that they need. And in some part of me goes, that's a good point because there are times where people would install a system and then try to do something, but they're offline and it breaks because they don't have the right drivers. So that's good. But at the same time, it's weird that they are focusing so much on NVIDIA in the sense of like, you know, now it's, uh, Ryan has talked about it in previous episodes that, you know, the, the, the fact that they, that AMD is not getting enough attention from Ubuntu, but nvidia is getting all this focus on it and they're even they're even willing to add what like 
uh, 400 or something. No, 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 it was 200 or something megabytes or something like that to, to on top of their existing stuff. So they, they, they take it to the point where they have like 2.1, 2.2 gigabytes of an ISO that with previously they would can, uh, argue about even the smallest amount of stuff added to an ISO. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's actually about 115 meg when okay. you download the, the, the run file anyway. Okay. Well, that, that's better, but still, you know, it's still, it's still a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's still a lot for this per- this particular purpose that only applies to, you know, a, I, I don't know about the, it's not necessarily half of the people. So mm-hmm. like, the, and, and it's just weird that they're not putting that much focus on the competitor of AMD, even though AMD is the open source person or like the open source company yeah, that's focused. Champion even, yeah. 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 A lot yeah. of focus, you know, I, I get, I struggle with how to comment on this because I like so many people from the Ubuntu community and I love Ubuntu. You know, I think it, it's a great yeah, product, although I've moved away from a lot of it, you know, just because I fell in love with Arch and, and other things. But I struggle with this stuff because on one side, people forget when I came to, I, people call me the AMD fanboy. The reality is when I came to Linux and for many years, I ran Intel and NVIDIA. In fact, my first videos are Intel and NVIDIA machines that I built. Uh, I still have a lot of Intel machines. I don't have anything NVIDIA currently, but I'm not opposed to it. I just like the competition because I think it was needed in the marketplace terribly to move the technology forward. That's my biggest thing. And and AMD deserves the recognition for the incredible work that their CEO has accomplished and their engineers in making AMD what it is. So that I just want to get that clear because I like NVIDIA Ooh. a lot. I also love that Ubuntu, one of the ways reasons I was able to stick with Ubuntu and stick with Linux is because Ubuntu was the easiest to get, even back then, four years ago, NVIDIA drivers working, right? So as a new user, I didn't have to do some special voodoo in the terminal to get NVIDIA to work. I went to additional drivers, it would usually pull something down and I would install it and it would work. um, And that was fantastic. Now they're taking all these steps to make a dish, make it easier and easier and easier and easier. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with it. I, right. I see some people going nuts over it, like, you know, because they're from the FOSS community. The reality is if you're a hardcore FOSS person, you're not using Ubuntu anyway. I mean, <laughs> that's true. You, you know, so that's really not their thing. They, they kind of have a more pragmatic view on, you know, um, open source and things like that. They support it, but they're, they're also realists that, you know, most of the market, at least up to this point, although I think it's shifting, um, is, has been NVIDIA. I do yeah. think they need to do work with AMD. I think okay. it's a shame that they don't. I was very happy in our interview with OpenSUSE to hear, and I also noticed on their webpage, a lot of times some of the stuff is sponsored by AMD, which does show to me that AMD is actually involved and willing to engage in the open source community and that there needs to be a connection there between Canonical and AMD. Now, some people are going to say, what do you mean they need to work with AMD more? It's already built into the kernels. First of all, there are many cards where the drivers are not built into the kernel and will not work. So you would need a driver, which you will get nothing to help you with that in Ubuntu. Mm -hmm. There are the OpenCL headers that, you know, AMD is working on RockM and other things, but there are certain professional applications in which you do need AMD's proprietary driver. You get nothing to help you with that in Ubuntu. This It just does seem to be a bias there. And my hope is, yes, continue down this road with NVIDIA because this will bring more users and make it easier. And I love it. But you also need to look at other, and this includes with Intel as well, because likely when Intel releases their GPU, it's going to be a kernel-based driver as well. And mm. you're going to need to work with them to make sure that you yeah. get their drivers in. I, th- I think to, to address the balance is exactly as you said. 
um, Canonical need to put those AMD drivers on 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 the the D on, on the CD or the USB or the ISO image as well as having the NVIDIA stuff. But also, I think because the AMD stuff is baked into the kernel, okay, I know you like to take your time and you're always three or four. Get 420 out there now, today, so that when you buy yep. this brand new card, because we know, four, we know 420 is as solid as a rock, so stop faffing about Canonical. Put it on there Love and let's have, a, let's, have a, let's have a balanced playing field again because I stand by my original statement of you use the tool that's right for you. So, yeah, if you're an NVIDIA user, this is fantastic news. But if you're the AMD user, you've still got that hassle of trying to go and find out where all these tools are. Level the playing field, AMD, um, Canonical. Put the 420 kernel on the ISO and put some AMD proprietary drivers on there as well because I'm sure – their install routine will work out whether you need it or not. Because I'm sure that if you download for 1910 and you've got an Intel machine, it won't even bother looking at AMD because it can't find it in your, yeah, in your right. hardware. The, so level, level the playing field. Well, yeah. it is. It is the, the 1910 will have a level playing field because, I mean, 1904 already has version 5.0 in it. So the 1910 yeah. is probably going to have 5.2. And it, it's, they're going to have the support for the existing hardware. The new hardware that's coming out soon, probably not going to have support for that. And that's the biggest issue with it. I, I think it's great that Canonical is trying to make it easier for users because that's what they do. That's the, the reason why yeah. Ubuntu is the suggestion. Why they're well, the very biggest desktop, probably. Yeah. And I think that it's it's a great thing that they're doing this. It's just they shouldn't be focused on one company. They should be focusing on all of the companies that are, are necessary to have hardware for users. And there's this – it's interesting because – AMD is like Intel has always been the open source option, but they also were the CPU only. And and AMD was the first company that had graphics cards that were open source and that are actually focused on the community and, and using the kernel modules and that kind of thing. And the fact that they are they, they are such a benefit and I guess like a bastion of the community at this point because they open source their CPU, they open source their their GPU, they uh, have like, but at the same time, we have distros that are not really focusing on the people who are focusing on us. Like, yeah, exactly. That that's yeah. the part that annoys me. If if they if we if we would have, if if they had AMD and Nvidia to say the equal playing field, like you were saying, Zeb, I wouldn't care that they were adding this new ice this right. new feature to the ISO. They'd be just great. Sure. It's just the fact that they're 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 kind of ignoring the people who are. At, fair enough, they use AMD used to ignore Linux. Like ten years ago, AMD was terrible on Linux. But ever since the new CEO came in, they have like reinvigorated the AMD as a company. They reinvigorated their development. They they're making better hardware than they ever did. They're making better hardware than their competitors in some cases. It's just that we're not giving them credit for what they're doing. And I wish that the companies and, and I'm thankfully open SUSE is, but I wish more companies in the space would give them a credit for what they're doing and, and participate with them and, and what they're trying to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a great point you made about, and I totally forgot about the fact that they've got the five series kernel in the latest Ubuntu. So let's just tone down my 
um, rant uh, Ubuntu slightly, but come on, you could still do a bit more for the AMD users. Well, the there. point was though, your your point's very valid. That it takes a long time in between when a new something new comes out. If you're on NVIDIA, you're going to get the proprietary driver right away to get ready to install. If you're on AMD, it took me what three four months before I could get the yeah. mm-hmm. Radeon Seven to work in Ubuntu. Yeah which is why I left Ubuntu, why no machine in my house runs it, not because I don't like it, not because it wasn't the thing that sold me on Linux, not because I don't love the community, because I do, but because I realized at that point, I am somebody who always has the latest and greatest stuff and Ubuntu mm-hmm. can keep up. Yeah. And that's why I went to a rolling release uh, model. So I, I think that in a way, if you look at, like I said, I love what they've done here. I love that they're making it easier for NVIDIA users. They need to balance it. But also when you add in some of the other stuff with their partnership with Microsoft and everything else, there's just a lot of mm-hmm. lost people, probably um, even people who aren't hardcore FOSS going, wow, this, this is just a lot of proprietary focus going on lately. Yeah. It's also interesting, <laughs> it's worth noting that the AMD people, like the people who are using NVIDIA, you also should thank AMD and want AMD drivers and everything to get, you know, get as much as attention. Because if you looked at the previous, before AMD started their huge uh, uh, approach and their huge campaign to get open source stuff and get and start working with the kernel and all that stuff, before that, NVIDIA maybe released once a year to to the NVIDIA users. I was going to say you was about three years behind the latest release. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like you, you, like if you were lucky, you got a year uh, update. And mm-hmm. it was like, and then as soon as AMD starts pu- like tr- competing with them and start pushing the NVIDIA is much harder. Now NVIDIA is like, hey, we got a new release. Here's day one or like maybe the week, first week or whatever. You got a reasonable mm-hmm. update time. And it's all because they're now having to compete much harder with AMD. So even NVIDIA users should want AMD users to get the same level Absolutely. of quality too. Because yeah. yeah. competition makes all the ships rise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Some app designers and developers have recently banded together to release an open letter to developers of the GNOME platform. The purpose of this letter is to ask the distro developers to stop theming their applications. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because what happens is GNOME tries to force a specific style sheet on the applications that run on it. And it makes sense uh, from a global standard, right? You want all the applications on an operating system to look the same. Thank you, Apple. Right. That's kind of where we get that, that, yeah, that right. idea from like, <laughs> God forbid two different applications run on the same system and look totally differently. We can't have that. So the operating system should decide the style sheet for every application. Here's the problem. It doesn't always work out. And what you end up happening is you have text boxes that tries to implement a dark theme. And so the text box where you go to enter text is dark, and then but the text is dark too, and so you can't see what you're typing. This has bitten me more times than I care to uh, care to admit. And what it's done is it's interesting because as a person who goes to apply a style sheet because I want a dark theme, and then I notice all of a sudden half my applications I can't enter text into that. Uh, I've actually kind of gotten upset at GNOME. Turns out a lot of other people are actually going back and complaining to the software manufacturer and saying, hey, Firefox, I can't enter in my text because your thing is all dark, and so could you fix this and make it work properly with GNOME dark theme? And, and Firefox is coming back, or Mozilla is coming back and saying, no, 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 no. Our theme works. Everything works inside of Firefox. The problem is GNOME is forcing down this style sheet. So what they're asking for is they're saying, hey, it by default, instead of making us having to hard code these style sheets, uh, why can't you let people opt in to something else? 
if they, you know, if they want to choose. And then if, if they say, hey, if you're a distribution who changes the system style sheet and icons, please reconsider this decision. And so I, I guess my take is a very firm, hard, solid, n- no equivocations. The application should be the ultimate authority on, on what works. And if they want to take in the style sheet from GNOME, for example, uh, that's fine. But if but if if they're not going to be cognizant of the fact that GNOME has this particular style sheet, particularly as it relates to dark modes, that's where I've seen the most problems. If you're not going to be cognizant, software manufacturer is not going to be cognizant of that, then you need to let the software manufacturer ultimately decide what the application is going to look like because they're responsible for this. Interestingly enough, Lightworks is uh, is a great example of something doesn't doesn't respect any sort of theming of any kind when you launch lightworks it doesn't matter if you're running on kde on gnome on mac os on windows it doesn't matter it always looks exactly the same and i don't think that's a bad thing i think there's right. nothing wrong with that and yet, are the window controls in different places sometimes yes does it look totally different yes does it look like a gnome app no who cares nobody it just <laughs> works so mm-hmm. I, I mean I, I really i have a very strong opinion on on one very on one side of this issue okay so to take you up on that point i understand exactly where you're coming from noah but you've got to look at the gnomes point of view so you say if you've got 20 applications and they all look different does anybody really care Mm -hmm. surprisingly enough a lot of what you hear the linux community nagging about especially on certain um, distros is oh well they can't make their mind up whether they're gtk2 or gtk3 and they can't make their mind up whether they're having the same sort of they've got so many different mm-hmm. themes going on and mm-hmm. that's where something let's say like elementary comes into its own because i don't think there's a single misplaced application in their repository that doesn't match the style sheets. Because one of the things that Elementary says is if you want to design an application to work with us, you follow these coding designs. Hmm. And it may just be because it's the way GNOME does it, that they don't say to people, okay, by the way, when you provide an application, please write it in this particular style. It's got to conform to our um, applications. But I totally understand, you know, somebody spent six months pouring their heart into this application and everything looks great. And Gnome goes, nah, throw it away. You're going to look like this. It must be infuriating. And you get their support tickets on top of it. The application developer now has to sit there and deal with, which I've had happen to me many times in, in the past where you open an application, you can't see any text. It's happened in Caden Live, in fact, where just the text is just completely gone because some theme overrides Caden Live's theme and then poof. Um, this was a past issue, but I, I remember even getting comments on a video with people asking for support from me saying, hey, when I open Caden Live, um, you know, everything's black. I can't see the text. The file menus are blank. I can't see the text. Th- these type of issues. I even think I have a video out there on how to fix it back in the day. So this overriding of themes is now the app developers have to go out there and try to fix something that's not their cause. So how are they mm-hmm. supposed to fix it unless they just hard code it into their app? Yeah. And and the other downside of it is going to be as well, if Gnome are going to continue to do this, yeah, developers will go, ah, oh, I ain't going to be bothering with this. I'm going back to Windows. Well, I mean, there's there's mm. multiple issues that you have in this situation where one side, the app developers, they're they're making the app. They decide what it looks like. Fair enough. But there's also the other side of the distros want to have the best foot forward for people to use it. So they, so for example, we talked about earlier with Zubuntu having uh, not the best looking theme because XFC doesn't have that great of a theme. But 
what if the, it was Ubuntu wanted to, or to change like their theme completely and have a super custom thing? That would be a contradiction to what these people are saying for this structure. So, like, would say for example, Solus. They have a, a massively custom layout of GNOME in the GTK apps because they have and they have a nice design and it looks great and it's a, one of the best polished uh, setups by default. I mean, a lot of, like elementary, elementary has a yeah. similar kind of approach without that really heavy polish, and Sol, Solus has that polish, and they actually responded to this in a, in a sense because I'm not going to give you the whole thing. You can uh, I'll check out the show notes. I'll have a link to their response. Uh, but that one of the things they said that in the in the I don't know manifesto I guess what do you call it uh, they say or open letter uh, they say oh, icon themes can change icon metaphors leading to interfaces with icons that don't express what the developer intended and their response to that was icons are widely inconsistent without icon themes because there is no standard standardized way for an application to design its icon especially given icon themes such as Edweta don't have any coverage because of her most third-party applications so like when you have a theme that they, they want you to stick to and you install something else that, that this icon theme has nothing for the icons immediately just look out of place so they mm -hmm. install an icon set that has these different icons for the various different applications they all look nice consistent and polished that is what people wanted to provide because it makes the system look much better and then you have this weird situation where they're complaining about people changing their icon. They even say that they don't want you to change the app icon uh, because the an app icon is the identity of an app. Changing an icon, an app icon denies the developer the possibility to control their brand. But an icon... I agree with that. But no, an icon set doesn't change their brand. It doesn't change their image. It just changes the style of which it displays it. It absolutely just changes their brand. No, it, it absolutely okay, does. Okay, if you yes. change, if you change, if you install the Numix theme, Numix icons, and you have Firefox loaded, does it still look like Firefox? Is it still a Firefox yes, brand? Yes, kind of. But here's the thing: there are. I was so it's interesting. We're in the process of of launching a, a, a website to do some really cool things, and as part of that, we needed participation from the distros uh, to use their branding and their logos and so we reached out to their graphics team and said hey can we have permission to do this and certain a, a lot of them as you might imagine just said yeah man knock yourself out right but there were companies like red hat comes to mind particularly the spacing between the 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 the, the d and the t and the and the h there's a very specific space and the amount of thing from the top to the bottom, there's a specific space and the amount of the, the specific shade of red that the hat is supposed to be presented in is a specific shade of red. Like all of this stuff is carefully thought out and, and planned for, for, for careful branding. And so, yeah, I absolutely think you change the branding. If you just say, well, yeah, it's recognizable as Firefox, but it has a slightly different hue or a slightly different tint, or it went from a circle to a square, whatever the, changes mm -hmm. that they're making like it that you there's no denying that that it absolutely changes the brand it 100 percent does i don't think, now, it maybe changes, they don't care. I don't think it changes the brand I but i think it does it does it's a significant point that i would agree that it does change it significant to a point where you can notice that there are changes um but yeah. i would say that's even only just that's only just talking about the app icons themselves not like the icon themes as far as like what's inside the applications are completely different because you have like you know font awesome that's just an icon set and it's just a generic icon set. And if you have that mm -hmm. in your system, you're you're not changing that much. You're not changing anything that's significant. So maybe the icon, the app icon, maybe is a is a is a valid point. Even though I think the consistency aspects of icon sets are also a valid point. It's just like the theme itself. If 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 you want to talk about consistency with GNOME, and they're not wanting you to change stuff, let's point out that GNOME is not consistent with itself. 
all of these different applications that, that signed this let, open letter don't mm-hmm. even don't look like each other at all. Like they're very different from themselves. Why does that? I, here's the thing: I'm still struggling with. Why does that matter? Why does it's it about matter polish. if all application? Why does it matter if all application? Like, w- is it not more beneficial to have functional apps? And and, and because here's here's essentially what I'm hearing. Essentially, kind of what I hear in the background is. App developers are lazy, and so they just want – they just uh, – essentially, if they're not going to design it themselves, then we just want to let GNOME decide it for them so that everything looks consistent. Like, at the end of the day, the reason that it works on an Apple platform is because the app developers themselves are targeting the Mac platform. We don't ha- – that's not the world we live in in Linux. You don't, have, yeah. you don't have manufacturers that are targeting Linux as – I mean, some are, obviously, but there's a yeah. lot of places like the Zoom client, I guarantee – you, they go with the, the 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 most basic thing they can get to because they just don't care and they'll just they'll port it out there and they'll throw it out there. But there, there's nobody sitting down and saying, "How do we make this work with Linux?" And then to dig into that a little bit more, it's it would have to be, "How do we make this look the best with GNOME? How do we make the best look with XFC? How do we KDE, make etc. etc. Et yeah, it's just a, it's just a never ending thing. So you you like what would be wrong with just saying if you want 15 different desktop environments and you want application developers to come over, then we better just let them decide what their application look like i guess that's the argument i'm not seeing a counter to it's 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 a difficult one and and it's and theming and the way stuff looks is just too subjective for for a definitive answer to be given but they can just hard code it in and to me that's the answer just hard code like lightworks you're not going to go lightworks and put it in kde or gnome or any other desktop and get any different looking lightworks it's going to be exactly the same lightworks because they hard code it in I think the app developer said something in the article about not wanting to hard code it in. Why not? Uh, you're not going to change GNOME, first of all. I mean, yeah. this is the company that removes everything. So <laughs> you might as well just go in there and hard code it if you want your application to look a certain way, and then you don't have to worry about supporting it. I don't see why it's so much difficult for them to just hard code it. Because and they want the... Wait, what's, Noah, who cares if your applications look don't look like the theme? I care that the application works. I know people care exactly. out there. Exactly. But I, I am certainly not one of them, and I bet you most people don't even look at it. I, I care about consistency in, to a point, but I, I don't care if the if, if for example, if I was using an application that had it hard coded, I wouldn't really bo- it wouldn't stop me from using application. It's like whatever. Um, but the the reason why they didn't want to do it is because they want the ability for the users to change it. They just don't want the de- the distro developers to change it by default. And uh, if if their complaint of having people change it is because if you change this stuff, you are breaking the possibility of their support, then they shouldn't want the users to do it either because then they have an issue where someone brings it in like, I have all these issues and there's these things not working. It's not displaying this thing. And they're like, well, you don't, you're not using what we give you, so we can't support you. So what's the difference of just hard coding it in general like what's the I agree with like what's the point of not hard coding it if you're going to not support them anyway? So right. it, it it just it's a weird situation in the sense that there's there's really an interesting perspective that I'd like to share for this, and that is the huge the biggest problem with this is that they're talking about how GGK overwrites the style sheet. You know what toolkit doesn't overwrite the style sheet and just changes fluidly? <laughs> That's He's cute. Right. The yep. Qt toolkit changes fluidly and works cross-platform. You don't have to worry about that. You yep. change the design for one one, pla- one platform, it works on the other. It doesn't matter. Imagine and, that. And it's and it's it is kind of funny because the entire time I'm reading this this open letter, I'm going, "You're just giving more reasons for Qt 
to be better than better than GTK. <laughs> yep. So it's yeah, just and interestingly, really weird. interestingly enough, you find if you go and if you go and quiz, and I, I've done this too. I dug into this about a year ago. I guess I was. I was walking around. I was really kind of interested in digging into the different toolkits, and I I started asking people what toolkit you prefer and why. And what you found is the people that preferred Cute could list. A, a mile long list of why they preferred cute and all of the advantages and the scalability and the ability to do cross play like everything under the sun. Right. And the, the, I, I, the, the answer I got more often than not from GTK people are, well, it's just kind of personal preference. That's what I prefer. Like, okay. What I learned. <laughs> good, exactly. good reason. Yeah. I mean, honestly though, I mean, that really is kind of what it amounts to. And yeah. then there's people that just say, Oh, I just like GTK apps. Okay. Well, what specifically do you like about it? I, I just like GTK. I, I think they look better. Okay. So you don't have anything in specific that you think is, you know, that you can point to and be like, well, this, 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 and this. Now they do. Uh, but cute people can. Yeah, yeah, we have an extra one now. But this is, it's weird because, like, I've had people, when I, I, and when this came out, I, it was a the Reddit thread on it, and I commented on a Reddit thread. And I got some responses back that were not very favorable of my comment. And my comment <laughs> was essentially uh, saying a similar thing about how this is just the GTK GNOME developers talking about how GTK is broken fundamentally and that you just change the theme and then it breaks your application. That is a bad toolkit. Whereas if you, with a cute, if you change the colors and you change the layout, you change the decorations of an, of an application, it doesn't break the application. It doesn't hurt anything. Like it, you can, in it, it, it manages it so much better. But at the same time, when I, I also pointed out how cute is cross platform, GTK is not. And, uh, so w- 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 the fact that we're focusing on GTK as so much in this community is kind of weird to me because the transition from a, getting developer to come to Linux, if you say, hey, here's Qt, you can use Qt on our platform too. You're already used to it. Who cares? Feel free. And th- if we were focusing that way, it would make more sense to get more people, more developers to come over. But then we have so much focus on GTK, which is completely different than anything they've ever used before because can you get GTK on Windows? Yeah, kinda. There's third-party tools, so if you want to install a a repo from from Microsoft that has a older version of GTK in it, yeah, you can get it, I guess. Sure. Or if you want to have other third-party tools to get it, I guess. And if you wanted to get the Mac version, yeah, it sort of works, but you also have to install this extra bundle integration package that's not exactly the same as GTK. So even if you have a different, even if you technically can get GTK on these different platforms. It's not really the same code base because of all the differences that are involved. And then, can you get it on Android? No, not at all. So, like, it's it's just it's weird that this is this they decided to make this open letter to things talking about how these different issues. Because to me, it just made me laugh and say, well, yeah, all these issues are because it's GTK. If it was cute, none of this would even be a thing. We would so, be Michael, about. you're going to have an open letter to Gnome saying move to Qt. No, see, I wasn't planning on it, but okay. that's a great so, idea. So, to your point, so here's the, you say that in jest, but the truth is you don't see cute people running around with hammers bashing everybody over the head saying, hey, use our toolkit. But you do see GTK people doing that, right? Yeah. Like, it, it, it's honestly, it's kind of funny yeah. uh, because it can back it up with less, you know, empirical evidence of here's why this is a better toolkit yeah exactly i actually had a conversation with a couple of people who were gtk fans and then in the conversation i would mention all these different reasons why cute was better and then every single person in that con- every time that i had the conversation with gtk people they would go well you have a good point and I, you're not wrong about what you're saying but i like this 
Like, well, right. listen, okay. if you are a GTK <laughs> okay. fan I, and you could send us an email and let us know the top reasons why you think GTK is superior to cute and we may read it on the air if any of it makes sense. So, I would like go. to know. Yeah. yeah. Sounds great. So next up in the news is a happy item because it's a game Eagle Island. So pixelated game lovers like Zeb will rejoice to know that Eagle Island has released the demo of their upcoming Falconry-inspired platformer. While there's no official release date yet, this game is receiving tons of praise and looks like an absolute blast to play. If you have ever played platformers, which I'm guessing are most of the games that Noah probably played back in the day, 100 years ago when Noah was a kid. I played Super <laughs> Mario and Metroid and Castlevania. Hey, 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 I will wipe you up and down the walls with N64 Goldeneye any day of the week, buddy. <laughs> See what I mean? And that is a beautiful <laughs> classic game right there. So this is inspired by that classical console-like art there, but it's still, I think, really, Zeb, if you looked at it, because I think it would actually pass, even though it's pixelated, your critique because it's not ugly pixel it's quite beautiful pixelation there well had you given me this game to re- to review yeah there wouldn't have been an issue but That's i'll save my comments for later because i review. just watched this and i immediately thought of and i always forget which one it is but there was a there was a game that i used to play with the family when when we when we had the i think it was the uh nintendo mega man um, and it no it was it was a it was a Something about a little boy, and he would swim down amongst the fishes, and you'd have to dodge the octopus and go into somewhere else. And I'm, I'm hopeless at remembering the names, but it was a platform type game, very reminiscent of this. And I thought, yeah, I could, I could get into this. This could be, this could be quite fun. And as you say, it's pixelated, but it's pixelated in a very professional way. It, it's capturing that old image style. Mm. Um, but yeah, looking at it, it, it still looks good. I'd play it. Yeah. I think it looks really cool. I'm excited that it's getting its release on Linux in day one. And uh, I love these style of games. These are fun because even if you don't have a dedicated GPU, these type of games are ones you can take with yourself on the road. So, um, you know, if you're going to a conference or you're going to a place where you're going to have some wait time, you could take your Intel-based laptop with only an Intel GPU and be able to still play games like this while on the road, you know, kill some time and then, you know, play something else later. Um, but yeah, it looks like a very, very cool game and you get Linux on day one and will run on a very minimal specs based on what the system requirements yeah. there in day one Linux release. So go download the demo now and add it to your wish list if it's something you're interested yeah. in. It looks like a pretty solid thing. I think it looks it looks great. Like the art style is like old retro but modern work on the art. So it like it has it has a nice retro but at the same time very like really well styled pretty approach so that's mm-hmm. really cool okay so before we move on to the next game um i just want to take you back to where the my co-hosts were interviewing me and one of the things that i said that i really dislike about linux is regression okay and for <laughs> weeks for weeks we had a wonderful show we had nice games and everything was tickety boo and rosy and now we have ryan at his regression worst trying to troll me with a game how dare you sir? so we have yeah trying this was fantastic <laughs> urkala stunning pixelated game i think stunning 
sums it up. Did I use the word stunning? In the title, Urkula, stunning pixelated game. I've watched the 35-second clip 30-plus times. I haven't got a Scooby-Doo what this game is about. (laughs) (laughs) Work out who's the enemy, who's the bad guys, who's the good guys. Are these people? Are these robots? Are these just red blobs? I'm, I'm going to leave you to read it, Ryan. It's the it's apart from Dogafesto Manifesto or whatever it was called. This is possibly oh, and apart from my gorilla game that you gave me that time, this has possibly got to be one of the worst things <laughs> ever asked me to have a look at. So, Zeb, it's I shocking. get blamed for a lot of things on this show, and I'm shocked <laughs> that you would assume it was me that put this in there. But the truth of the matter is, the person who's laughing the most right now, Mr. Tanell, said, "Hey." Ryan in the Zen middle of the week. Love this. Give this to <laughs> so the filthy jewel booter. Trying <laughs> to get his own back. So he gets his own back on Noah last week by giving him a, a Windows book to hold and with a, you know, <laughs> a, photo, a, a photo, basically photoshopped him in having a, a Windows uh, 10 uh, oh. install CD <laughs> box over my beloved Red Hat box. <laughs> yeah, and, and this week he gives me this monstrosity. Well, wow. I mean, to be fair, it's me getting back at all the other stuff, so it's it's yeah. it's well, about funny. time, really. What's funny, Zeb, is he put it in there, and I didn't read the top sentence, which is "You've got to troll Zeb with this." I just saw the video, so I clicked on it, and my response was, this looks awesome. And Michael's response like took a few seconds later, and he's like, yeah, but look at the Zeb thing. <laughs> because I look at these type of games, and yeah. I love them, right? I'm I mean, like, to oh, me, this game is actually looks cool, and it looks fun. I'm like, it's 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 definitely a preference thing. I put this on a 4K screen, full full screen, yeah? It's... it's... What are you talking about? <laughs> so it's obviously what it's about, is that it's about... Endless We've waves not- of enemies. It's about Urkala, obviously. Yeah, it's obviously. it's it's about having a ton of different uh, defense. It's like a it's like a tower defense Base type defender. game. Yeah. It's 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 a it's a cool concept. And how I, can I, you tell the difference? So One be- just, just before. Oh, before I didn't we, use the video. I just read the. Notes before we go any further, let's talk. We haven't even explained what the game is. The Linux version has been confirmed, so hopefully the final product will not be far off. Some of the features include responsive platform controls, endless enemy waves based on administrative yeah. defensive building, character weapon progression, and random bosses. So uh, now you and can it's a platform, talk about and it's a platform tactic game, right? But but how can you tell the difference between what's a boss, what's a bad guy, what's a good guy well, okay. when the graphics are so shocking? To be fair, the gra- the way that they made the video is not the best for a demonstration of the game because the video goes from showing some snippets of the game, then some big text, and then back and forth over and over and over. So you mm. don't really know exactly what's going on because you don't have the context of what it's trying to do. If they were to do a, uh, if they were to show you more of a gameplay footage, you would you would get what it is, uh, because yes. like there's yeah. there's pieces of the footage in that snippet that you can tell if you yeah kind basically of what it is, but... the the three blocked character with the two blocks extended out are the bad guys and right. the five block half moon pixel with the half right. block down line and the little red that's your mech. That's the, that's the good guy, yeah. yeah now, and, and, I'm, and I'm not having a go at the game manufacturers because there are people out here who love these types of games. Yeah. And, and, and this is really, it's not a Ryan Troll attempt, it's a Michael Troll attempt. And I'll end this I think it was successful. by saying, payback's a... <laughs> <laughs> yep, it was definitely successful. I'm going to put that on the, the mark right there. Yeah, well done, Michael. <laughs> But I think the game's still pretty. It's, it has potential. So if you like pixelated games, you should definitely check it out. It's not like it's like it's it's 
it's a unique design for sure. In the game's Urkula. All right, so on to our software spotlight. This one has been just a amazing, great tool for me. I absolutely love it, called Deja Dupe. It is a very simple backup tool that allows you to do complex backup tasks, including remote backups. So if you have offsite remote backups that you're trying to connect to, you have the ability to do that in Deja Dupe through a GUI interface. If I have a new machine, I can set up long scripts and things with rsync and maybe just save the scripts and run those across and things like that. I just want to be able to install a program, click a couple buttons and boom, it's moving my stuff to my new server. I, I don't want to have to deal with scripting or setting up cron jobs or anything else. And Deja Dupe does all the hard work in the background, basically for you. You click a few buttons, you choose where you want the data to go and click how frequently you want the backup to occur. I've also done several restoral processes because to me, to, tap, to use a backup tool, you've got to test the restorals to make sure it actually works. So I've gone through multiple situations where I've purposely deleted files off, done the restorals, and each and every time it brings the data back exactly as it should. So I suggest if you're you know, wanting to have an easy solution for backup, check out Deja Dupe. I love this tool. Mm -hmm. So a question for you guys. One of the things that I regularly do is in my .local file under share, I back up my American Truck Simulator and Euro Truck Simulator directories. This Deja Duck could do that for me on a regular basis, could it? Or would it be mm -hmm. I'd have to fire it up and say run the backup? No, it can be scheduled. It yep. can be scheduled yeah, as well, yeah? It, it, and then the nice thing about Deja Dupe is it does Delta, right? So if once you buy the first one is going to take a really, really, really long time. The, mm -hmm. the, the next ones are just going to be incremental. So they will take, you know, seconds probably just yep. to update your progress. Uh, so it's a really cool tool. In fact, honestly, you know, just not to get too carried away, but Time Machine, which is widely touted as this magical backup thing that runs on Apple, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's essentially Deja Dupe they ripped off. Uh, it's, it's, got, it's, got, it's got functionality of rsync all, all over that place. Mm -hmm. uh, and and that's, that's essentially what they're using with Deja Dupe. So, the, I mean, all of, that, all of that incremental backup stuff, it's, we all had it on Linux first. They yeah. just ripped yeah. it off. And, and is it easier to use than Time Shift? I think so. I, I mean, time shift's pretty easy to use, but Deja Dupe is like three screens total, and it allows mm -hmm. you to do all of the advanced functions within those three screens, like scheduling, like choosing which folders you want to back up, yeah. which ones you don't. And it's just, it's so simple. I can have it up and running in, you know, 15 seconds, and mm -hmm. I've got a machine now running backups for me. It, it's brilliant. Yeah. All right, so, so having had hard disks for ages and ages and ages, I've got eight USB drives. Does it have to be a Linux file system where it does the backup or can it use NTFS? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I don't think I've ever tried it We're, on because I'm not a filthy dual booter, so I don't know. Him. Yeah, but it doesn't, you don't have to dual boot to have an old system. That, I mean, there's no way I'm going to transfer and, and, and take eight terabyte off of a drive, then put it into extension four and then transfer eight terabytes back again. So I mean, I've if you brought the drive with you to self, oh. I would hope you do that. Just saying. But, <laughs> but, but, but aside from that, yes, you can write to NTFS if that's what you're asking, as long as you run the code on a Linux box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you totally can. Absolutely. Cool. Nice. But then that's, that's a major plus that it has over TimeShift because TimeShift will only back up to another um, Linux file system. Hmm. Good to know. So there's, a, there's just a really interesting tip for this, for this week is uh, 
you've probably heard of head and tail like maybe as if you've ever checked out these uh, applications there there's they're they're very useful for a very specific thing but tail can for this tip is actually you could you could apply this to your logs and you can maybe use tail to monitor logs in real time to see like bug reports and uh, information for bug reports and system analysis and stuff like that and this will provide you with updates that occur and that could be invaluable for bug reports and showing the developers of how what you're experiencing at that particular time that you can then share really easily and it, it provides a lot of uh, benefit to you so you don't have to get this gigantic log file and send in the log file and like here's the thing that I'm experiencing as I'm doing it and it makes it a lot easier to do so and uh, there's there's some we'll have a, stuff in the show notes that give you like what to use because it is it is kind of specific of what you need to have like you need to have certain uh, parameters and flags associated to it when you do it and also you would need to use sudo in it so we're just going to have like there's there's different ways to do it for OpenSUSE and Red Hat and that kind of side and also Debian. So we're just going to have all the different notes in the, uh, the the different commands in the show notes and then explain what they do that way. So rather than just saying it right here that you're probably not going to be able to write it down at the time the time we're saying it. So uh, Yeah, that could cause accidents. What, Car's what? like, what do you say? Let me write that down. <laughs> exactly. It'll be so in the show I, notes. I do want to dig in a little bit because I just want to specify something. So the 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 command tail tack f tack n six and then wherever the log is and then this follows it, right? This is a really interesting tip. As long as I've been doing system administration, I've never known about that. And what's interesting is the way I've always done it is it. And this is a pretty pretty hacky, but watch tack n and then one second and then my tail command of the log. And so what happens is it just reruns that tail command every second. And that was kind of my way of of live watching the log as it were. So this is a way more efficient way to do it. I love it. Yeah. So this is part of uh, where I found this is doing some research to help with the document that the lug group I'm working on for. And one of the biggest things that people who aren't wanting to become system administrators, but they want to help in a distro, one of the hardest things for them because it's so inconsistent across distros is getting helpful logs that they feel comfortable with putting into a bug report that people aren't going to get mad at them or laugh at them or something like that. So this was one that I found that I love because it shows an nth number of, you know, lines at a time. So just six lines at a time, or you can make it three or four. And then as you're doing that activity, you see the error, it's following it real time and you can grab that and put that into a bug report. So hopefully it helps people. One of the hard things about putting all this in the document is different distros do keep their logs in different places. So you Mm -hmm. kind of have to compensate for that, which is what kind of Michael was referring to there. Yeah, that's very cool, though. I think that's the first time we had a tip that Noah didn't know about. So this is this is a day to remember. Well, I don't know about that, but it is a really <laughs> that's a really cool tip. That's I like awesome. start using that. All right, so a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. We absolutely love our patrons. In fact, this show is sponsored by our patrons and Kofi members. If it wasn't for them we would not be able to do this show each and every week. So thank you so much. And we want to let you know that if you want to support the show, you can join us for just $1. You could probably find that in your couch cushions if you really tried. $1 per month, that's pretty much darn near free. So consider being a patron and supporting the show. That's right. We're now on Kofi as a way to support the show. You can buy us a cup of Kofi. We would love you to do that. <laughs> and that offers a nice monthly option, which you have. 
<laughs> the same perks as Patreon. There'll be a link to the, in the show notes, as well as our as well as our website, so you can join Kofi and buy us a cup of Kofi. The perks include things like live access to shows, unedited uh, live access to unedited version of the shows, as well as our most sincere gratitude. Absolutely, and as I say every week, please get back to us and let us know what you think about the show, ways that we can improve it. Do you want to see a few more outtakes? Because I know we've had a couple in, in recent episodes. Um, but hey, ask those burning questions via numerous methods. You can email us at comments at destinationlinux.org. We also have our Telegram group. Please join us and chat with us there. Discord, Twitter, Mastodon, and a plethora of other ways that Michael has got available for you on destinationlinux.org forward slash contact. Now, Michael, you we have the unedited version of the Richard Brown interview. That has to be at least additional 30 extra minutes of content, if not more, right? Yeah, it's a significant amount of content. And also, yeah. um, it's worth noting that he, he stayed for the post-show, for the, the patron post-show. So there's an outside of the interview, there's... I think like an hour extra of just having a conversation with the patrons and Richard as, as well. So it's, it's a, it's, it's a lot of content. If you, if you want to get more from the interview, there's a lot more to that. And there's also just a bunch of extra bonus stuff too. So uh, there's, there's plenty of reasons to become a patron. Does the fun stop there, Michael? No, the fun doesn't stop there. Actually, <laughs> we have our own channels and uh, you can check out Ryan by going to tux, tuxdigital.com slash DOS geek. That's you. actually, I did do that. Um, but anyways, <laughs> seriously, it's youtube.com slash dustgeek where you can find, you find him filling, filling your brains about hardware, software, and all things Linux. Uh, Zeb, you can find him at yeah, youtube.com slash zebityboss. Uh, you can find Zeb driving at crazy speeds, moving aside caravans and to get in his way on his live streams. And yeah. you can also check out my content at tuxdigital.com where I do uh, in-depth weekly Linux good news uh, shows, uh, this, this Week in Linux, and other Linux-related content. Uh, Noah can be found if you must. Uh, where he, so wow, still you're still holding a grudge. Well, he just changed it again. It says Linux GNU's archives. Like he, <laughs> he just changed it again. It's like he, if he's gonna try to mess with me, I'm gonna go back to him. And no, uh, you are so sneaky, man. I love it. Anyway, so he says, uh, but Noah hosts a deep weekly talk radio show at uh, 6 p.m. Central on Tuesdays. You can join me and answer all your Linux and business questions and stuff like that. And also remember to like that smash button and share the show on social media. So everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.